couple of songs, huh? Why don't we try that? We better get back, because it'll be dark soon, and they mostly come at night. Mostly. Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And we're continuing our discussion on the Alien franchise by discussing the sequel to the 1979 film Alien, Aliens, from 1986. Yes. And I'm super excited to talk about this one. Obviously, Alien is one of both of our favorite films, mm-hmm. I would say. I don't know if it's the you know favorite but it's one of our favorites and i think it's safe to say that aliens is either approaching or is both of our favorites yeah i mean every time i watch aliens i like it i just think i've seen alien a whole lot more you know Mm -hmm. than i've seen this one and i don't i don't really know why i think you know maybe we'll get into that discussion later on in the podcast but um i don't know maybe it's one of those litmus questions you know like what's your favorite muppet and it's like which aliens movie is your favorite (laughs) that's incredibly difficult to answer and if they say you know resurrection runaway screaming i'm okay with resurrection i mean it has some merit you know maybe we'll get to that next year but uh if they were to say like prometheus i'd (laughs) run away screaming or alien 5 prometheus 2 yeah if i were to ask a guy who's your favorite muppet and they said miss piggy and then they were like prometheus as their favorite alien movie i'd be like oh we can never speak again (laughs) god Either way, Aliens is a 1986 American science fiction action film, written and directed by James Cameron and produced by Galeon Hurd. The film stars Sigourney fucking Weaver, reprising her role from Alien, for which this film is the second installment, as we said. The film follows Ellen Ripley, the sole survivor of the Nostromo, as she returns to the moon where her crew encountered the hostile alien, although this time she's accompanied by a unit of space marines. The film also stars Carrie Henn, Michael Bean, Paul Reiser, Lance Henriksen, Jeanette Goldstein, Al Matthews, and Bill Paxton. Gordon Carroll, David Geiler, and Walter Hill of Brandywine Productions again served as executive producers. They were interested in a follow-up to Alien as soon as its release in 1979, but new management at Fox and legal issues with the studio postponed those plans until 1983. James Cameron was handpicked to write the film after they read a copy of his screenplay for The Terminator, and after that film became a hit, Cameron was hired to direct Aliens as well. The film features a score composed by James Horner. Rest in peace. Mm. For this deep dive, we'll be covering the director's cut, referred to as the special edition in this case of Aliens. It adds a few scenes and an important subplot element that was cut from the original theatrical release due to time constraints. Well, Robert, it's getting dark. And since they mostly come at night, mostly, (laughs) let's get into it. This is Aliens. Just tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back, but to wipe them out. That's the plan. All right, people, on the ready line. Are you ready? Yeah! Are you ready? Yeah! Are you on the ready line, Marine? Get down the die! Keep back, don't scare! Movement! Talk to me, Hudson! Uh, 
I got signals. I got readings in front and behind. There's nothing back here. Look, I'm telling you, there's something moving in. It ain't us. Get them out of there! For 57 years, Ellen Ripley, played by Sigourney fucking Weaver, has been in stasis, traveling through space in the shuttle she escaped in after self-destructing her ship, the Nostromo, to escape a lethal alien creature that slaughtered her crew. By luck, she's found and rescued by a deep salvage team. After recovering from such an unusually long stasis period, she discovers that her only child, a daughter, has passed away a daughter she promised to return to by her 11th birthday. Due to the extended time in stasis, her daughter passed away of natural causes at the age of 66. Soon after, Ripley is debriefed by her employers at the Wayland yutani Corporation, who are skeptical of her claims that her crew found alien eggs in a derelict ship on the exomoon LV-426, as it's now the site of a terraforming colony, Hadley's Hope, home to 50 to 60 families. Ultimately unsatisfied with her claims, the company strips her of her starship license and assigns her to mandatory psychiatric probation. Later, after contact is lost with the colony on LV-426, company representative Carter Burke, played by Paul Reiser, and Colonial Marine Lieutenant Gorman ask Ripley to accompany them to investigate. Still traumatized from her alien encounter, she eventually agrees, but on the condition they go there to wipe the creatures out, not to study them not to bring back. Burke agrees. After waking up from hypersleep aboard the spaceship Sulaco, Ripley is introduced to the Colonial Marines and the Android Bishop, played by Lance Henriksen. A dropship delivers the expedition to the surface of LV-426, where they find the colony deserted. Inside, they find makeshift barricades and signs of intense battle, but no bodies. They find two live facehuggers and containment tanks in the med lab, and a traumatized young girl nicknamed Newt, played by Carrie Henn, the sole survivor. Knowing that every colonist is equipped with a tracker, the Marines remotely locate the colonists grouped beneath the fusion-powered atmosphere processing station. They head to the location, descending into hive-like corridors covered in alien secretions. At the center of the station, the marines find the colonists cocooned, serving as incubators for the creature's offspring. They come upon a colonist who is still alive, only to witness an alien burst violently from her chest, killing her. They incinerate the infant alien, killing it. They begin to hear distant hissing sounds, and their motion trackers start to go off. They are now surrounded by movement they can't see. Full-grown aliens begin to ambush the marines, killing or capturing many of them. When the inexperienced Lieutenant Gorman panics, Ripley assumes command, taking control of her armored personnel carrier, and rams through a wall of the nest to rescue Corporal Hicks, played by Michael Bean, and Privates Hudson, played by Bill Paxton, and Vasquez, played by Jeanette Goldstein. 
Now, with the full knowledge of the danger they are in, Ripley and Hicks decide the best course of action is to nuke the entire site from orbit. Just to be sure. Much to the chagrin of Burke, who doesn't think that they have the right to destroy an entire species outright, or the expense of colony. Hicks orders the dropship to recover them and to take them back to the Sulaco in the moon's orbit. But a stowaway alien kills the pilots, causing it to crash violently near the survivors. The remaining group barricades themselves inside the colony. After checking the colony's communication logs, Ripley discovers that Burke had ordered the colonists to investigate the derelict spaceship containing the alien eggs, intending to become wealthy by recovering alien specimens for use as biological weapons. She tells him that as soon as she is able, she'll expose him. Soon after, Bishop informs them that the firefight with the aliens has damaged the processing station's cooling system, and that they have only four hours before the fusion reactor goes critical and creates a nuclear explosion. He volunteers to crawl through the extensive piping conduits to reach the colony's transmitter and remotely pilot the Sulaco's remaining dropship to the surface. Ripley and Newt fall asleep in the medical laboratory, awakening to find themselves locked in the room with the two facehuggers, which have been released from their tanks. Ripley triggers a fire alarm to alert the marines, who rescue them and kill the creatures. Ripley accuses Burke of releasing the facehuggers so that they would impregnate her and Newt, allowing him to smuggle the embryos past Earth's quarantine, and of planning to kill the rest of the marines so that no one could contradict his version of events. But before they can deal with Burke, the power is suddenly cut. Motion trackers indicate that the aliens have somehow gotten past the barricades unseen and unheard and begin to assault them to the ceiling. In the ensuing firefight, Burke flees but is cornered by an alien and killed, while Hudson is captured after covering the other's retreat. Gorman and the injured Vasquez sacrifice themselves with a grenade to stall the aliens, and Hicks is injured after Nuke gets separated and captured. Ripley and Hicks reach Bishop in the second dropship, but Ripley refuses to abandon Newt. The group travels to the processing station in the dropship, allowing a heavily armed Ripley to enter the hive and rescue Newt. As they escape, Ripley and Newt encounter the alien queen in her egg chamber. When an egg begins to open, Ripley uses her flamethrower to destroy the eggs and the queen's ovipositor. Pursued by the enraged queen, Ripley and Newt reunite with Bishop and Hicks on the dropship. All four escape moments before the station explodes, with the colony consumed by the nuclear blast. Seemingly safe on the Sulaco, the group is suddenly ambushed by the Queen, who stowed away in the dropship's landing gear. The Queen tears Bishop in half and advances on Newt, but before she can find and kill the girl, Ripley reveals herself, now wearing a mech armor-like cargo loader suit, and politely asks the Queen to move away from Newt. <laughs> She battles the queen using the exosuit before finally expelling the queen through an airlock and into space. Ripley, Newt, Hicks, and the critically damaged bishop enter hypersleep for their return to Earth. The end? <laughs> Politely asked the queen to move away. I thought from you'd like that. Yeah. <laughs> Won't you please get away from her, ma'am? <laughs> I also thought you'd hate seemingly safe on the Sulaco, but you didn't say anything. <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> so. After the success of Alien, fans were hungry for a sequel, so the film was more than eagerly anticipated. 
Aliens was released on July 18th, 1986 in North America in almost 1,500 theaters. Aliens grossed over $10 million in its opening weekend, and it was number one at the box office for four weeks and became the seventh highest grossing film of 1986. Including worldwide box office numbers and re-releases, Aliens has grossed over $180 million against a budget of $18 million. I would say that's a success. Mm-hmm. One of James Cameron's many... Aliens holds a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes and is certified fresh. The audience score stands at 94%. The site's consensus reads, While Alien was a marvel of slow-building atmospheric tension, Aliens packs a much more visceral punch and features a typically strong performance by Sigourney F. Weaver. (laughs) Interestingly, the first film Alien has an identical audience score and only one percentage point higher on the tomato meter, sitting at 98%. That is interesting, Robert. Thank you for telling us. I know. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. I think I mentioned that in the last recording we did for Alien. Yeah, you did. Aliens received almost universal acclaim. Robert E. Robert. It's me. Robert Eppers gave it 3.5 stars. <laughs> I had a nightmare last night that you gave Aliens 3.5 stars. I would never. Thank God. Three, all it's the like, way. It's over. <laughs> We're finished. <laughs> Get away from my podcast, you bitch! (laughs) Roger Ebert gave it three and a half stars out of four. He called it painfully and unremittingly intense and a superb example of filmmaking craft. Walter Goodman of the New York Times said it was a flaming, flashing, crashing, crackling, blow-em-up show that keeps you popping from your seat despite your better instincts and basically conventional scare tactics. <laughs> I don't know if that's, I mean, it's a good review, obviously, but I just, I really enjoyed the way he, that turn of phrase. I almost did. said pooping. Pooping. <laughs> you pooping in your seat. Yeah. The movie made the cover of Time Magazine, who called it the scariest movie of the summer. Time reviewer Richard Schickel, that was declared the film a sequel that exceeds its predecessor in the reach of its appeal while giving Weaver new emotional dimensions to explore. Oh, someone was excited. Echoing Time's assessment, Dave Kerr of the Chicago Reader called the film one sequel that surpasses the original. On the negative side, critic Gene Siskel, always that contrarian, described aliens as one extremely violent, protracted attack on the senses, and that toward the end, the film resorts to putting a young girl in jeopardy in a pathetic attempt to pander to who knows what audience. Some, I know, (laughs) all of them. (laughs) He continued by saying, some people have praised the technical excellence of aliens. Well, the Eiffel Tower is technically impressive, but I wouldn't want to watch it fall apart on people for two hours is he trying to say aliens is a technical masterpiece but it falls apart for two hours i mean i guess it's i mean like or and is if he you just were saying watching, it's a disaster like you don't want to see people in peril for that long i maybe but i mean like disaster movies are a thing right and if they had a movie about the eiffel tower falling on top of people don't you think people would go and watch that i mean I, yeah i don't know I mean, like, Gene Gene Siskel, may you rest in peace. Like, every time we read a review by him, he's so fucking contrarian about, like, genre films. I just don't think he likes them. Mm -mm. No. There's some bias, I feel. So the film got numerous accolades, including seven nominations for Academy Awards, winning two of them. It was nominated for Best Actress, Best Art Direction, Best Score, Best Editing, and Best Sound, and it won for Best Sound Effects and Best Visual Effects. It's obviously very rare that a genre film, and this might be one of the first examples of a genre film getting one of the biggies, which is Best Actress in this case. Uh, I mean, so it depends on what you consider to be a genre film. 
I think, right? So, I mean, it, it, we could go as far back to say, like, like whatever happened to Baby Jane, if you would consider that to be a genre film, you know? Um, uh, Ellen Bernstein from The Exorcist, maybe. I mean, definitely, like, Sissy Spacek like, from Carrie, I think, is, like, the biggest example of, like, early yeah, genre, sure. best actress work. But, I mean, like, as far as, like, the sci-fi genre goes, yeah. I, yeah, I would say that this for, is, yeah. yeah. It was widely viewed as a uh another reason why she didn't win is because it was from genre but we'll get more into that later as we discuss who she was up against but until then it was also up for other awards so continuing the praise for sigourney weaver she was nominated for a golden globe for best actress in a drama it was nominated for four baftas with one win it was nominated for best makeup best production design and best sound and it won for visual effects it sort of cleaned up at the saturn awards had 11 nominations and eight wins I was nominated for Best Actor, Michael Bean, Best Costumes, Best Makeup, and it won Best Sci-Fi Movie, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor for Bill Paxton, Best Supporting Actress for Jeanette Goldstein, Best Performance by a Younger Actor, Carrie Henn, Best Director, Best Writing, Best Special Effects. That's a lot. Yeah, for sure. It also made number 35 on Bravo's Scariest Movie Moments. Empire voted it the best sequel of all time. Wow, better than Godfather 2. That's crazy, right? Interesting. Well, I would agree. Anyway, it's also number eight on AFI's 100 Years Heroes and Villains, and as uh, Ellen Ripley is number eight. So you think when they made that list, the AFI, the American Film Institute, they were considering Alien and Aliens as a whole franchise as the character that they were nominating or just specifically from this movie? It was Heroes and Villains, so it doesn't matter how many movies they were in. Like Indiana Jones is probably like number one on that list or something. Mm-hmm. Or no, actually, I think I remember Indiana Jones being in the top 10, but I think it is um, To Kill a Mockingbird, Gregory Peck's character is number one. Oh, he is a really good hero. I like him. I like Atticus Finch. A lot. I love Atticus Finch. Oh, yeah. so much. Not in the sequel, but we don't talk no. about that. <laughs> no, which will never be a movie. <laughs> so, I mean, oh, that would just destroy, like a, would destroy a character for all of America. I don't know. You know, that's a different conversation. That's true. So let's uh, let's get into the movie. That's because uh, it's a long one. I mean, considerably longer than Alien. Right? Yeah, and and uh, honestly, like I was looking at the production of this, and Alien was made in fourteen weeks, right? Wow. Aliens was made in ten months. That's how yeah. much longer this movie took to make. Well, I mean, and it's kind of like evident. Yeah, too. there's a lot more going on. Uh, there's you know they had basically, you know. A, two major set pieces in alien and here they had quite a few and a hell of a lot more props and things to do on screen so yes ma'am yeah but let's get started with the actual movie um just like alien we kind of broke it up into acts and this one's a little bit harder to do that with uh, because there's just so much more going on but i have to say the first section of the film is really just dealing with the aftermath of alien right yeah mm-hmm. so we pick up and uh with her and she's lost in space and found again right so she's in this shuttle that she escaped in from um the nostromo the nostromo almost said nilaco when i was combining (laughs) (laughs) and it actually starts very kind of reminiscent musically and pace wise to alien and it's funny that throughout this film james cameron actually does kind of pay homage to that 
that pacing in several moments. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of continues that thread of DNA of Alien in a way that the other movies didn't really do. Right. So I feel like these two movies are very, very connected or much more connected than the other sequels, in my opinion. Yeah. And I agree. And I, I don't want to like start so early on in the talk of aliens about shitting on the sequels that come afterward, you know, I think we could probably save that for another conversation. Well, really? Yeah. And I'm, but, I'm really looking forward to next year, hopefully when we cover alien three and possibly resurrection, because there is a case to be made for the director's cut of alien three, which I had not seen until recently. And, and I, I have kind not of blown seen away ever. It kind so, of turned a three star movie into a four star for me. And I like resurrection. So, I mean, I, I think those are good conversations to be had, right? Okay. But there is a lot of homage going on in this movie. And I, I really enjoy the way that it starts, right? Mm-hmm. So she's she's still asleep in stasis, and we can see Jones with her, and the entire ship is like just glittering, right? I mean, yeah, space it really dust. appeals that appeals to my senses. All that glittering space Ice dust, crystals. right? Yeah, yeah, I also love the machine <laughs> that breaks her out of the thing, uh, the the blue like sensor that um, you know looks for life, I guess. Mm-hmm. And it's just so pretty. <laughs> the sound it makes when it finds her and everything is like, you know, bothered my neighbors well, with the subwoofer. Because it comes in it's <laughs> and it's like it's hovering right into the into the room and it's shining that blue light. Right. And there's just the way that it sits there so perfectly still and like hovering and mm-hmm. like shining. I, w- I thought to myself, I was like, my God, James Cameron loves to make things look like it's underwater. Right. So mm-hmm. just like be right there in the middle of like space and air. Little, little fun fact that was i think one of the last scenes that they ended up doing and uh they were out of money and so james cameron had to go out and buy like that arm himself that little animatronic arm so that came out of his own money at the time it is that kind of commitment to filmmaking that i appreciate so because yeah, he he's a perfectionist and uh you know that goes for and against him um you know when people talk about him but anyway so we have the sequence where she's waking up um, and she's coming out of her, you know, slumber and she's, she's, I don't know how, but Burke is the one to give her the news that she's been under for 57 years. The doctors didn't tell her. Oh yeah. My God. So like she has that nurse there and she's like, oh, I think you have a visitor. Right. And it's Burke with the cat and she's happy to see the cat, you know, and Burke introduces himself and he's like, no one's briefed you on this. He's like, you've been asleep for, you know, a gobbledygillion years. Yeah. <laughs> And from that, she she tries to find out, you know, what happened to her daughter. And this is one of those big subplots, uh, if not the major subplot, I guess, that was uh, left on the cutting room floor for the theatrical cut. You'd never learn that she, you know, had a daughter that was going to that she had promised to return to by her 11th birthday. And that was not in the theatrical cut. And so I thought that was a really poignant scene for um, for Sigourney. And also that she had to walk into that stupid meeting right after finding out her daughter died, you know, only to be told that they didn't believe her. And, you know, she's uh, she has no agency. Well, and it's during these waking up scenes, aside from like, you know, learning about her daughter's death and things like that. But I think that we're, we're given a glimpse into where her mind is at this particular moment. And it's it's kind of fragile, like anybody suffering from like PTSD or something oh, like yeah. that. Like she has these very intense nightmares. And like, I remember the first time that I saw Aliens, um, I really thought that scene was real, you know, with that, you know, chest burster coming out of her while she's laying in that bed, mm-hmm. right? Like writhing and pulling her shirt up and whatnot. I mean, it's, it's 
the very intense scene, you know, something that we don't want to see Ripley in, but I mean, it, it really gives us an idea of exactly what she's dreaming of every single night, what she's thinking about. Like she, she has been for all intents and purposes, you know, destroyed by being a survivor of this particular experience. Exactly. And her head has got to be in like the worst space possible, feeling guilty for having those nightmares of an alien when your daughter is dead and you, all you want to do is dream about her or feel bad right. about that. You know, and so she's she's kind of, you know, she's under another scene, little part that was cut was that she, you know, is in the psychometric uh, psychiatric screening or whatever probation. And that's what she was assigned to. And so, of course, she is talking to the psychiatrist and Burke later tells her that he's read the reports. I'm like, what is like the privacy laws in the future? Uh, There's none. (laughs) I mean, when you work for a corporation, come on now. Well, yeah, that's that's a theme in these is that this is an all powerful kind of corporation, you know, Wayland Yutani, you know, it's basically can get away with murder you know everything except for getting past earth quarantine apparently so that whole inquisition scene they have where they're all sitting around that like conference table and we have the you know the crew of the nostromo in the back right i mean i i wanted to think and it could be like are these only company people are these all company men and women insurance or there's some government a company associated associated people i'm not sure um I, i would assume so but, you know, they're talking about the, you know, the billions of dollars that were lost with, uh, you know, the ship and its freight, you know, and its cargo and, and everything else. And they, of course, the entire crew. But, of course, the theme there is they're less concerned about the, the dead crew and much more concerned about their missing property, you know. And so but she knew that she couldn't trust them. Otherwise, she would have brought up Order 937 from the first movie, which was, you know, crew expendable and that they were sent to that planet under false pretenses, you know. And so she really played her her words carefully and she really didn't give two shits, I don't think, about where she ended up with them uh she was i feel like she was kind of done with the company at that point anyway yeah um and she was really hostile she was like did iqs just drop sharply while i was gone you know i know (laughs) what has happened in these 57 years and no that's not all (laughs) you can just kiss all that goodbye I really, I mean, like she has just like one Oscar moment after another in this movie, and that's like the very first one, right? You know, she's crumbling up those papers, and she can kiss all this goodbye. You know, yeah. I mean, it's just so good. I also like after they had that, you know, like really terse situation where they've stripped her of her command or whatever her license, and that the guy who was leading the the, the room, he's leaving, and she stops to talk to him, and he seems almost jovially friendly, mm. and she was just like, "Why don't you just send someone down there?" And he's like. Oh, I don't have to, you know, so smug and shit. Yeah, they were they were obviously didn't tell her that that there was a whole colony down there, which is obviously why they didn't believe her. Yeah, you know, but so goes our story because that Mm -hmm. kicked off. That was a catalyst. That meeting was the catalyst for everything that happens later in this film, because later, as we know, Burke had sent you know an anonymous anonymous message from the company to go send this mom mom and pop team excavating team or whatever to go off and check out this coordinates for the ship and of course that's what starts this whole thing he, he's responsible for the deaths of those 50 to 60 families and so he he after he sends those people they lose they lose contact with the colony mm-hmm. obviously and so she has this told you so moment that she doesn't do that you know she doesn't say told you so she just says no i'm not interested Go away. And that mom and pop excavation team is our first uh, glimpse at Newt. Right? That's so true. And that's mm-hmm. also another scene that was cut 
uh, from the theatrical. So we never got to see her parents actually go to the ship or her brother, who's actually her brother in real life. I mean, and I know we will talk about like special edition differences later on, but, but my Lord, I just, uh, you can't cut these scenes from this movie. I think they're sort of integral. I think that you lose a lot of like characterization if you don't. So we'll, we'll get to that much later on. So then she eventually just says, yes, she has another nightmare and she says, fuck it. You know, I'm going back and we'll, we'll kind of get into the psychology of that decision a little bit later, but uh, you know, it, the film basically cuts um, to where they're waking up on the Sulaco, you know, mm-hmm. waking up to a bunch of cocky ass Marines. Mm. I, yeah. I, I mean, you could really use the word cocky here. Oh, yeah. And di- <laughs> more than one way. <laughs> and dinner with the fam and Bishop <laughs> setting up another antagonist for Sigourney. Lance Henriksen is excellent in this movie, I think, as Bishop. And uh, I love the the setup for the characterization and, and kind of drama between the two characters because of her last experience with an android fully tied with the company orders you know mm-hmm. especially on this mission she's she's going to be keeping you know both eyes wide open on bishop you know thinking that he's going to just try and take these aliens and right back to the company you know crew expendable despite <clears throat> i think like the, there's like lots of huge differences between the characters of ash and bishop right i mean like we know that bishop is an android from the get-go right it's, it's he wasn't trying secret. to hide it yeah yeah, so it's a secret in the movie. I think that, you know, Lance Henriksen played him in sort of an, an android robot kind of way, in a way that Ian Holm did not play Ash, right? Well, he's more actually in almost in an opposite way because he's more empathetic. He's more friendly. He smiles, you know? Yeah, but just something about the way that he, like, moves his head around and blah, blah, blah. blah. You know what I mean? like a, Innocent. Yeah, he was trying to play him super innocent, like a six-year-old yeah. child, in a way. So, but I mean, they, they really, like... <laughs> immediately have something for her to like watch and keep an eye on and not trust. Right. And I I think that she's really looking for things to not trust in this particular mission because she, she has to, she has to survive something else. They have no idea what they're, you know, getting themselves into. And this is interesting because James Cameron, again, I think here is kind of playing homage or at least using the same tools that uh, Ridley used an alien to get us to kind of know these people. We get this uh, really jam packed exposition of who these characters are and just a quick succession of lines over dinner and then getting ready and getting down to the, the, getting down to the planet. And it's just super effective in that way. We get everyone by the time they're on the planet. Yep. For sure. I mean, like, yeah, I think that, you know, we, we get to know some of the more important, you know, Marines, you know, and yeah. I don't like, I don't like to use that word really when talking about characters, but we, we know which ones are expendable and which ones are not just story based wise. on yeah. story wise, you know, like they, they take the time and very quickly for us to like get to know these characters. It's like just masterful, like screenwriting. There are some like throwaway lines that I didn't like that just seemed overly like over the top like oh there's some colonist daughters we have to save from their virginity and blah 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 it's like mm-hmm. we didn't need that you know we already got who the sergeant is we don't need that line from him you know there's a stereotype here that we don't really have to dig that deep into we've already we've already gotten to know these characters a little bit and that's true i mean they're, 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 i guess they're just trying to like you know this is what marines talk about when they're having dinner together in front of other women you know i don't know yeah i like i don't think that's really needed either but i mean it super ramps up the like 
hyper masculinity that's going on in this like unit of marines yeah you've yeah. you've ever been mistaken for a man no have you no and of course you. that's taken from a famous uh <laughs> film back in like the 40s or 50s i forget it's like gloria swanson or something i do love that line though it makes me laugh every time i say yeah it. i was gonna include it in the in some of the quotes that are famous from this film but but it wasn't original but they used it to great effect here and i love that they mm-hmm. kept it alive but there's a lot of weird throwaways like you just too bad, you know, like this weird, like it kind of antiquated, you know, Marine talk here. That's that get that it's a little hard for me to swallow at this point, watching it in my 2020 eyes, you know, but yeah, whatever. It's forgivable. This is a 1986 movie and it looks great. And I mean, sometimes you just have to have some filler, you know, that there's things going on in the background or something that's happening to further some sort of characterization. You have to have some like throwaway filler lines. Yeah. And I mean, it's five okay. by five. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> We've heard that before in other places as well. Yeah. So um, the Marines gather together before they head down to the moon, LV-426, and they're sort of being briefed by Lieutenant Gorman and Ripley as well, right? And so I think that this is another sort of critical scene because it sort of sets up Ripley as an expert, even though I don't think that they treat her as such right away. No, they're very you know? dismissive, She's, but I think that comes from yeah. their cockiness more than it comes from them dismissing her as a person you know they're all listening but they just have they can't stop their like their peanut gallery chatter you know mm-hmm. but i mean even that like and a lot of that is bill paxton's like amazing performance in this, in oh this movie but, um you know but that sort of leads on into another moment where ripley finally gets to prove herself to these marines it doesn't take very long from being dismissed in conversation to being accepted by action mm-hmm and uh you know they they do kind of dismiss her but she does have that moment where she's like well i hope you're right because just one of these things managed to kill my entire crew in less than 24 hours mm-hmm. and then lieutenant gorman doesn't really know what to say to that he was like so just read your reports <laughs> yeah so we have ripley's report on disc and i suggest you read it there's <laughs> <laughs> like every other fucking business meeting yeah Phew. she does get to show that she is worth more than just you know the resident consultant right and so they're getting ready to go and she feels like you know a fifth wheel and so she asks if there's anything she can do and apone's like i don't know is there anything you can do and that's when we first get the glimpse of that uh power loader suit that she uses Uh later in the film and uh, it's pretty cool and actually um companies later asked the film producers hey how can we buy one of those can we you know like caterpillar and all these like and they're like it's fake it's for the movie (laughs) like (laughs) sorry you can't buy it <laughs> and I, I know we'll be talking about like some of the set pieces and like things they built for the movie and i have a you know a little story about like seeing this sort of thing like firsthand but i i love that scene where she's like loading she's getting into that loader and she's testing everything out and apone and hicks are watching her you know sort of like mouth agape and laughing a little bit and she like picks up that box and he's like bay five please or whatever <laughs> you know i was like it's just it's it's a really good moment in film. It makes yeah. me happy because Ripley is that kind of character. I mean, like she's, I think she showed us this in alien too. She's not just one to sit around, right? She was an officer, but she was like an everyman kind of officer. She's like, I'm coming down to where the engineers are working. Cause she could also work and fix. And she has know how about this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And it just really cements her as like, you know, the hero of this movie and this franchise. And I mean, as like, what could be like the the ultimate best final girl like ever yeah right? although i i dare say final woman is a much better you know descriptor for her yeah and one of the first real female action heroes exactly 
So, but after that, you're right. They do have the uh, the drop ship. No, the, was it the elevator to hell? Is that what he calls it? <laughs> the, the drop ship. And, and Bill Paxton has one of his moments. Elevator to yeah. hell, right? And so they, they land on the planet and they get to start securing it. And, um, you know, and going through. And Ellen's like, it's not secure. And like, it's secure, Ripley. And, you know, we do get those moments like Alien where they're going through. We see the video feeds. And we see the motion trackers. And it's really, really tense. In fact, uh, you know, some of my earliest memories of watching this is just um, really, really tense during those motion tracker scenes all throughout the film. Mm-hmm. You know, and just going through those corridors and and seeing kind of the devastation that's happened there by the previous occupants. And the fact that there's no bodies, nothing, just signs of intense uh, chaos and uh, battle. And I mean, like, it, it is sort of reminiscent of Alien in a way, like, like the, the set pieces sort of look similar, but it's like ramped up like a thousand percent, right? Things just look in- incredibly more intense and scarier in this. Like it's on an epic scale, whereas in the Stromo is just one ship. This is a, you know, a colony filled with people that are missing, right? Yeah. And so every blip on a tracker is going to be, you know, is it a, is it a, colonist is it an alien or is it a gerbil is it a gerbil is it a small girl you know i mean like there's so many like until and when it finally is the aliens you know i mean like shit really starts hitting the fan right you know and they but before any of that happens they find newt right and so we're given this like amazing um major subplot of the film yeah and i i think everything that sort of garnered um sigourney weaver her oscar right they they created a character that gives a lot of depth to her and like finding her we know right off the bat that you know ellen ripley has some sort of maternal instinct like deep inside of her well also to give the character something she really really deeply needed which was to give her something to focus on other than herself and one could argue you know going back was a huge part of that right to face her fears directly Uh, after facing such trauma but having newt there is someone to protect from those things you know someone to care for someone to pour all of your you know instincts into to shield them from harm and i feel like that's something that that she really really needed psychologically as kind of a break and focus from her own turmoil well yeah because i mean like i I would say that one of the the biggest reasons that she even went back in the first place was for those colonists, right? Right after that meeting where she, you know, is like talking to the corporation and he says, you know, families and she says it back to him. She's like families, like Jesus, right? Like she, she's going to help save people. Like she's always done. And then immediately in this particular scene where they find Newt, she has a tangible something to save. And that's incredibly important to her as a character. And it's also someone she can empathize with a great deal because it's the only other person that's around her that has experienced something similar to what she has. That's right. Like everyone else will dismiss her claims. She's like, well, I hope you're right, you know, and, you know, in her entire speech. And then she's talking to Newt and she's like, these are Marines. They're here to help you. And she's like, it doesn't matter you know and so she's the only person who knows like exactly what they're up against and mm-hmm. it's a fierce ally and like daughter figure for ripley yeah now we get to the central hub of the of the movie i think that was the kind of the heart right uh right. psychologically speaking spiritually of the movie and now we get to kind of the, the middle everything hinges off of this moment of them going hunting for the for the colonists right so they find them electronically and they're all kind of 
you know, all of their sensors are appearing underneath the the main like heat exchangers of the fusion reactor under the atmosphere processing station, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. And so they go there and there's Hive and, you know, they find, you know, all of the evidence of, of Ripley's, you know, report. She's completely validated and everything. Um, you know, they find one of the people hanging on the wall that are still alive and they get to witness a chest burst event. You know, and of course they incinerate that and everything comes alive. And that is one of the most horrific moments I think in this film is when, as soon as they kill that thing, you just hear the place waking up, you hear the place moving Mm -hmm. and it's, it's, um, you know, it's so incredible. Uh, it's such an incredible moment, you know, to see them react to that, to those sounds and to their motion trackers and not seeing anything, but us as an audience to the camera can see the walls start to move, you know, that they were there all along. It's incredibly intense and incredibly scary. And that first initial attack, you know, or like the battle between, you know, the Marines and the aliens the first time makes me cry when I watch it because some of them are picked off like one by one. And this is not like watching Alien where they had one seemingly like indestructible creature, right? Like they are shooting these things and blowing them up when they're not supposed to, you know, but um I mean, like they're they're actually killing them, and sometimes to the detriment of the the people around them. Because they still have acid but, for blood, yeah. Right. I mean, they still have a weapon once they're being killed, and but like we've gotten to know a lot of these marines, right? And they are just like immediately picked off and killed and destroyed, and they're no longer characters in the movie. And it just makes me incredibly sad because I like a lot of them, and I mean, it just goes to show you. I mean, like, I mean, war is hell. To quote yeah. another movie, you know. And the ones that weren't really killed in the firefight from some weird, you know, friendly fire or you know something going wrong with explosions, you know, grenades getting caught in fire and things like that, um, they find their life signs are still there but they're being cocooned, right? And so that's even more Mm -hmm. horrific than just them dying. And by the time we get to that, you know, where they're trying to escape finally after uh, Ripley is driving that, you know, I love that moment. That mobile tank. She just right takes in her there agency and-, and she just runs with it. Lieutenant Gorman doesn't know what the fuck to do. He's panicking mm-hmm. and she's just like, do something. <laughs> <laughs> and she literally takes the wheel. Yeah. <laughs> she don't wait for Jesus. She just do it herself. <laughs> but it's, it takes him like, it takes him several beats to even like figure out what she's doing. And he's like, Ripley, stop. That's an order. I'm like, she don't care. She going to save people. And that's, I mean, it's an incredible scene to watch, you know? And like, I was watching it this time and I was like, I see so much Tim Burton, like right now, you know, like Tim Burton must've been like sitting there watching this and like, suddenly in 1989 or whatever we have batman right because you can't you cannot look at that particular like tank car hybrid and think that he did not somehow model the batmobile well it's funny you should mention that because literally the set they're in is the same set for axis chemicals that they used for batman so are you serious oh my god for once i'm right about something (laughs) i was watching it and i was like this is like batman literally the same as that the industrial like power complex that they that they used in aliens and they had to clear all the asbestos out of it before they filmed there it was clean enough and, and everything after aliens that batman you know tim burton used it for batman for axis chemicals where the joker became the I joker mean, and all that but doesn't that 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 car that tank car right 
what did we call it? The uh, personnel carrier, right? Like it looks, it looks a lot like the fucking Batmobile. It looks like the later Batmobile from the later Batman movies. That's more tank like. The original Batmobile is much more sports car-y, elongated. But I see what you're talking about. I was getting all kinds of that, right? But you know, when when they crash in there and she she you know rescues who she can rescue, which is essentially just Hicks, Hudson, and Vasquez and Hudson, right? And um, we get these two distinct different characters right so hudson has had enough and he's ready to go get the hell out of there even when they say you know like apone is still alive and vasquez is like then we go back in there and get them and he's like no fuck that you know we're not doing any of that so it's very interesting that james cameron chose to do this in the story that quickly right because in literally two minutes or less they get just decimated mm-hmm. and the rest of the movie is fallout from that yep I mean, that, that first initial battle is very hard to watch. Like I say, like emotionally, it makes me sad. And then like the aftermath too, like I, <clears throat> I think that you, you, you think you have gotten to know characters. I mean, like Vasquez's character doesn't change all that much, really. She's, she's still a badass throughout the entire movie. But I mean, like Hudson was badass only in talk, mm-hmm. right? And I guess we know people like that in real life who walk around like, I'm the ultimate badass, right? And then when shit hits the fan, they're just like, no, I don't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, But after that escape, we, you know, they find themselves sort of like trapped on the planet because their dropship is completely destroyed. Yeah, well, I love that conversation they have first because they're they she finally eases down, eases down. <laughs> uh, yeah, eases yeah. down. And they talk down, about what they're going to do, down. you know, and Bill Paxton can't even, as he can't even for the rest of the movie. <laughs> and, you know, there's this conversation really between, you know, Ripley and Hicks and Burke with Vasquez just kind of voicing her opinion here and there. But saying that, you know, they should just really take off and nuke the site from orbit just to be sure. And Burke is already just completely against that, you know, which is really showing his cards after such a setback, you know? Well, I mean, like he is representing a company that's like fully invested in this particular thing. Right. So he doesn't want to see it go. And we don't know like how far reaching his other sort of machinations are in play. Right. But I mean, he clearly is speaking his mind a lot, but I, from his point of view, like, they could just call in more Marines and just exterminate everything and he can take back his samples and it's not too far gone yet, but it soon will be because they do try and call down that helicarrier or whatever it's called the dropship, and uh, it crashes because there's a stowaway alien. Mm-hmm. And that was uh pretty, I, mean, I like that scene too, where she's like calling out her, her co-pilot. Get <laughs> Spunkmire, yeah. And she's like, where the hell have you been? And she turns around and looks at that fucking alien. And the next thing you know, the window's like caked in blood. I'm like, ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Of all the moments in this film, that's like almost the most throwaway one, you know, where it's like, oh, there's an alien on board, you know, oh, there's like slime on the button, you know, and he goes up thinking nothing of it, you know. And I'm just like, okay, you know, the movie's, you know, this is really manufactured, but it really works. At the same time. It does. I mean, like, sometimes in action movies, you just have to have a catalyst for the rest of the movie. And that's that's all it is. They just need to hold... There's no need for a whole bunch of explanation or, like, expository stuff. I mean, like, there was an alien. It got on board. There was some goo. Everyone's dead. Dropship destroyed. (laughs) But, yeah, it doesn't have to be a lot, you know? It's effective. And, I mean, it it really does work. And without them, they wouldn't have all been standing outside with it getting dark. That's right. (laughs) And then we would have never gotten the best line from this movie. <laughs> so. 
<laughs> we better get inside. It'll be getting dark soon. And, and they, they mostly, mostly come, come at night. night. Mostly. Mostly. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, like behind and in between those lines, we get some other famous lines like game over, man. Game over. Mm-hmm. We're some pretty shit now. <laughs> I think uh, one of my favorite lines from Hudson is when um, they're going back and forth about like nu- nu- nuking the site from space from yeah. orbit. Right. Fuck it Which is, like, I think that. That's it. Yeah. I was like, I think we should go into space and nuke the site from orbit. And he's like, fucking A. I'm like, yes. Makes me laugh every fucking time. <laughs> Why you put her in charge? <laughs> he has so many great lines. Anyway, so, so then we get to the part of the film that I like to call Revelations, right? Ooh. Because she finds out stuff also, it's kind of starting the end. <clears throat> Double entendre. Anyway, so we mm. find out about Burke's bullshit, right? She she finds out, she goes into the, the communication logs of the colony and finds out that Burke has really fucked everyone over. He's responsible for hundreds of lives, 50 to 60 families worth, you know, and he doesn't seem to give a shit. And she's going to nail him right to the wall, Burke, right to the wall. Right to the wall. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and at that point, I believe she has stopped because there's an alien attack that's also in the special edition with uh with the guns the automatic automatic guns that are going um oh, those are uh, sentries or whatever yeah and uh that's a really tense scene and i'm so surprised it wasn't in the in the theatrical release all of that with the centuries yeah. was not in the original film i mean i want to know the reason why that they cut all these things out because i mean it was almost three hours and is it just that american audiences won't go watch a long movie like that i don't know that that's really well, the case showings but... is amount of showings per day like that too, oh that's true right? you got to make that money yeah, yeah. Obviously, uh, James Cameron, you know, kicked that theory in the nuts with Avatar because Avatar is like three hours long, and he's still making everyone in the world saw that. So, but after those uh, sentry explosions, uh, Ripley goes down to finally get some sleep after about twenty-four hours of being awake. She curls up, curls up next to to sleep underneath the bed, right, right after hearing that they're going to blow up in a nuclear explosion in four hours. Great time to sleep. That's right. Just like, hmm, yawn. I'm going to go take a nap. <laughs> yeah, they kind of hang a lantern on it because he's like, how long has it been since you have slept? There's nothing to do right now. Why don't you get some rest? You know? So I get it. You know? But at the same time, I'm like, she just found out that they're going to be blown to like kingdom come. Again, there just has to be a catalyst. You don't have to have any explanation. It's okay. You yeah, just they like, do a good job. End of that disbelief. No, they, yeah, yeah, they do a good job, honestly. Because I, you know, I mean, because God knows I probably would have taken a nap. I'm like, four hours, that's enough time. I'll take a yeah. little nap. <laughs> a dirt nap with baby Jesus. Well, I mean, that's almost what they got because when she awakens from this nap, there are face huggers in that room and her gun, which she had just learned to use in that very sexual scene with Michael Bean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just like every time that they have a conversation, right? It sounds so fucking like sexy to me, right? He's like, ease down. Well, they get each other because we down. did kind of gloss yeah. over another scene, you know, <laughs> where she's, they're about to enter the colony for the first time. They had just landed and she is hesitant. She has nothing on her face. Her face is a mask, but she stops. She doesn't want to enter. She knows what she's what's ahead of her and she doesn't want to deal. Right. And so of all the people, it's Hicks that comes to her and straight faced, not trying to like patronize her, says, are you OK? Mm-hmm. You know, and they have that moment. And so I think they have a connection ever, you know, ever since then. And of course, in the firefight, he was, you know, cool as ice, you know, and he's shown his worth up to that point. He gives her a motion tracker. 
so that it would calm her down a little bit, you know, and which she, of course she gives to Yeah, Newt. but it's not like they're engaged. Yeah, that's anything. what he says. I love it. You know? <laughs> yeah. You have to admit though, when he's showing her how to use that gun, I mean, like he might as well have been like, now, you know, stroke my shaft in this particular way. <laughs> well, I feel like all the dialogue in this film is just condensed, condensed, condensed to the simplest, most effective possible thing to get the most story told in the smallest amount of time. And that's why there's so many quotable quotes. And that's why, like, we can remember these lines that aren't necessarily quotes from the movie, you that's know? true. I mean, James Cameron knows how to craft a movie from a visual standpoint, right? And I, I know that he knows, like, the basics of story and character, right? And I would say that, like, sometimes his dialogue is kind of throwaway in this and other movies. Mm-hmm. But by God, if it's not memorable, I mean, this isn't and the effective. only James yeah. Cameron movie I run around quoting, you That's know? True. So props to him for that, for fucking sure. Yeah, and I love it when there's a writer-director combo, right? You know, yeah. Ridley Scott cannot take credit for creating you know, alien and all that stuff. It came from no. so many people. He made a very expertly crafted and directed movie, you know, but James Cameron with the help of a had his DNA in every single tiny little molecule of this film. That's incredibly true, but we digress just a twinge. Yeah. So the facehuggers are in there. They do escape when Ripley sort of like fakes a fire alarm and they have the leftover, the Marines come running and rescue her. And they should finally get, she gets to expose, Burke. uh, um, Burke, thank you. She gets to expose Burke and nail him to the wall and they're ready to kill him right then and there, but she says no. She's like, we need to keep him alive. We have to explain everything that's happening when we get back to Earth, because they still feel that they can get back to Earth. Mm-hmm. But before they can do that, the aliens are attacking once cut again, and this time they're getting into their compound. Yeah, yeah. they cut the power, and cut that's power. another really tense moment because you're like, mm-hmm. how can they cut the power, man? They're animals, you know? <laughs> they're animals. How do they cut the power? They're animals. <laughs> He's not very genre aware, genre savvy. No, that's right. (laughs) He's really not. And I'm surprised he lasted as long as he did. If he wasn't such a a good, funny character, I mean, come on. Yeah, it just reminds me of that Robin and Batman meme where Batman's smacking Robin. Smacking. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like Bill Paxton is constantly the Robin in that meme in this movie. But <laughs> he shouldn't be though. So we we get to this point in the movie now where they're killing off the the rest of you know sort of the expendable characters, but in really good ways, right? I think that they get to like show their bravery, yeah. you know, each well, and especially Gorman. Yeah, so. and it's also a really awesome moment where they're figuring out that it didn't matter. All the barricading they did, the aliens found a way in, and we get another really great moment with the motion trackers where they're like, you know, twenty meters. 15 meters, 10 meters, six, that's inside the room. How is that possible? Mm-hmm. You know, and finally they figure out they're, they're crawling through the spaces between the, the floors, the ceilings, right? And yeah, so we, we get a really another good moment, just like we did in Alien, when Dallas is going through the air ducts and he turns around, he sees the alien sort of open his hands to grab him, right? We're treated to another moment like that because they get in the, the ceiling with the light and we just see them all like crawling toward them in the ceiling, right? And it's just amazing. Mm-hmm. It's just another one of those, like, oh my fucking God moments. Yep. I remember that scene so, in particular really freaked me out as a kid. So um, Bill Paxton dies heroically, mm-hmm, yeah. right? And then we have Vasquez and Gorman dying heroically. They're sort of like sacrificing themselves for the rest of the group to continue moving yep. on 
to sort of meet Bishop at the drop ship. But before they can do that, of course, Newt is captured, and Ripley always has to go back for something, be it a girl or a cat. Well, I like how it's all kind of tied together, too, because it is uh, Gorman and Vasquez's grenade, self-sacrificing grenade, that trips uh, Newt in the ensuing fireball and causes her to fall you know below and get captured you know so everything's kind of just like very tense and connected and you know uh moving forward and uh i thought that was uh probably for the best otherwise it would have seemed almost too manufactured without that connection no i think you're right you're absolutely right because yeah because otherwise like her just falling if they had that that little wheel perfectly like still right if they didn't have that kind of explosion to throw them off guard she wouldn't have slipped and, and mm-hmm. fell right and you know and they were the ones who were holding that wheel steady right and so like it's their trip that sort of causes her to fall and really you know instills some sort of sense of i have to right the wrong that i've helped mm-hmm. cause right and then we get this this badass moment where you just get the sense that the film is ending and this is crescendoing into something because they get on the dropship and she said, we're going after Newt. I can't leave her behind, you know, and Bishop is like, OK, fine, let's do it. We have 16 minutes <laughs> before this fucking planet explodes <laughs> or whatever, um, you know, but that's that's what we're going to do. So she she gears up, you know, and uh, I love that elevator ride that she takes. And she's all gearing up and and everything in the camera lingers. And it's a little bit more like Alien again, a little bit more to the pacing and homage of Alien. And it really, the camera just stays with her. And I think that was so smart um, to give us that time where she's preparing and mentally preparing, physically and mentally preparing for the battle that's about to happen. Well, and it's such a sharp contrast to what we see at the end of Alien when she's like mentally and physically preparing for stasis, right? We see her sort of like get down to her most vulnerable in that particular movie. And we don't know there's another battle coming. And this movie, we definitely know because she starts to like sort of strip down and then she's like, okay, let me add everything else that I need, including this gun and these mm-hmm. grenades and these bullets, right? It's like the polar opposite of what she was doing toward the end of Alien. She's like becoming the badass that, you know, Ellen Ripley really is. No longer is she the woman running around and like, you know, company issued skivvies. She's grabbing a gun that someone literally just taught her how to use to go and rescue her surrogate dog. Yeah. And normally I would say that Sigourney Weaver will really Ripley or both, you know, are believers that. The, the, the power that you have, the real power that you have is not from owning or being armed with some sort of obvious weapon, you know, but she's doing this, you know, to get a job done out of pure mm-hmm. determination and a promise that she made to Newt, cross her heart and prepare to die or hope to die or whatever it is that she would, yeah. you know, not leave her behind. And I love that this works even better in this uh, special edition because of the knowledge that she had promised her daughter that she'd be back by her 11th birthday, which she missed. That's right, because by God, she will not break another promise. Right? I mean, oh, it makes me cry now almost thinking about it. I mean, like, it's a really, really good moment in that elevator. Not to mention... That elevator to hell, right, seemed short in comparison. When she's going down this elevator, I was like, how long does it take to get to this uh, basement or wherever she's going? I was like, God, what a long elevator ride. But it's awesome. It's the real elevator to hell in this movie. That's right. For sure. And then we get, you know, her rescuing Newt and the reveal of the queen, which we didn't quite expect. There's like a little bit of a throwaway conversation between Vasquez and Hudson about like, you know, ant colonies or termites or whatever. (laughs) 
you know she's fucking badass man she's big (laughs) (laughs) but we get to see this thing in all its glory starting with the excellent effects of its um of appositor it's a word that i've learned today listeners (laughs) laying all its eggs and then we pan slowly over to the queen which we can hear breathing you know, mm-hmm. and they're just in the thick of this, you know, she found herself running into the thick of these eggs, just hundreds of them or, you know, at least, you know, dozens and dozens, you know, and it's just the oh shit moment. And I really love that it, it kind of gives the, the audience this chance to kind of breathe, you know, or at least suck all the oxygen out of the room. I mean, f- for real, though, because I remember the first time that I saw that alien queen when I was a kid and I was just like, my God, it's like it's ginormous. It's big. It's a lot scarier looking than just a regular xenomorph. Right. And I mean, the movie sort of like has a lot of foreshadowing toward this. Right. Because isn't it Hudson who's like it reminds him of an ant hive, even though he's called out for like from by Vasquez and it's a beehive. Right. And he's like, whatever. They have a queen, yeah. you know. And then, like, the first time you see this movie, you sort of, like, dismiss that sort of thing. You're like, who is laying the eggs? And then by the time we get down here and see just how massive and mean-looking it really Uh is, I mean, it's quite a moment. But then we also get this moment between Ripley and the Queen. And I've heard some people talk about, like, this moment as, like, almost, um, you know, because we've got... We've got Ripley and we've got Newt and we've got the alien and her babies. It's almost like this uh, Grindel's mother moment, you know? Yeah, definitely. And... You know, she kind of makes this unspoken deal with the queen to not harm her or, or she'll harm her ex with the flamethrower. And it's all visual storytelling. It's great. And um, she backs out of the room and then she sees one of the eggs opening, you know. And I mm-hmm. love this look that she gives the queen. She's just like the sideways kind of head tilt, like, mm, it's like, really? really? <laughs> I love that moment. It says so much about this character. And then she just torches the whole fucking place and grenades the ov- ovipositor. I'm going to say that word over and over again. <laughs> I know until I start using it in my general conversations. The like giant egg like, sack. I, I know, know you hate the word Could sack. Could you please hand me some fried ovipositor? <laughs> Do you mean chicken? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hate the word yeah, sack. Yeah, so I put ovipositor so, in there just for you. That was my special that, thesaurus adventure just for you. My God, it's like Christmas gifts year round. Thank you for doing that. And then I was that. validated because <laughs> I watched the special uh, special features for aliens and they uh-huh. called it the ovipositor. <laughs> good, good. Because sack is a gross word. So yeah, listeners, you know, just keep in mind, if you really want to gross me out, just use the word sack. I can't stand it. <laughs> well, that and moist. And well, then there are other words, but we'll just leave those two on the table. The rest of them you can figure out on your own. All right. Ovipositor I'm okay with, though. So yeah, they uh, she destroys those eggs in the ovipositor, and they are racing to get back to the ship in the elevator, and the queen is in another elevator also racing yeah and ripley almost can't believe it she sees them coming behind and she sees the elevator coming up behind them like after she's like she didn't really Mm -hmm. right she's just like really like the queen can take an elevator i know they're just animals come on she can operate the elevator she's coming up that queen can problem solve right and she gets to the platform and there's no bishop you bastard (laughs) (laughs) i mean she feels validated and angry at the same time right how dare i trust an android even though he seems like he's been okay but then it's bishop to the rescue the 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 platform had become too unstable ripley 
I guess. And so, yeah, so they, they go off and they, uh, they escape back to the ship and it's this really crescendo moment. The queen's coming behind them. And then the, the, the whole thing explodes. The music's building in one of the, the most famous musical cues of all time. And uh, you know, they're back into safety, but it's that, that false sense of safety that the first alien kind of led us to. But this one I think is, is um, did, did the red herring a little bit better in this case with the explosion and everything. I agree because I mean, you you really think the story is over. They've already started talking about like, you know, (laughs) yeah. I mean, like clearly it's the end. We're getting ready for their stasis and whatnot. Hicks is already, you know, injured. He's got to go into stasis, but then we get a tail like right through Bishop and he gets bisected. Yeah. The the queen just rips him in half. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a good moment. I was just, you know, and still to this day, it just looks like an amazing effect, I have to say. It's, they've come so far just since 1979, right? Because when we have that, we have Ash on the table in the original Alien. I mean, like today it looks, you know, not so, you know, effective, right? Although I can imagine seeing it in 1979 and thinking like, oh my God, what the hell? There's a robot's head talking on the table. But today we're like, we know his head's like through a hole, yeah. right? But when you have a bisected bishop, we have Lance Henriksen with just like his torso and his like, you know, robot innards like swishing about. I mean, like that looks neat. <laughs> yeah. So, but then she has to battle the queen, right? Because the queen is again coming after Newt. Right. And so we get um, Ripley, you know, fulfilling her her prophecy that she started earlier by redonning that lifter, that exoskeleton machine and like just trying to beat the shit out of this massive alien. Queen. Yeah. And I think I remember the first time I ever watched this and she ran and Newt went under. I was like, why is she running? She closed the door. You know, this big fucking, you know, airlock garage door thing. And I was like, oh my God, is she going to get in the suit? Oh my God, is she going to get in the suit? And then the, the thing opens and there's this reveal of her stepping forward mm-hmm. slowly. Take the, it takes its time with it. She steps forward in the thing and then she says those lines. And I just fucking love it. <laughs> the greatest line in action movie, sci-fi movie, and possibly even horror movie history. Get away from her, you bitch. I mean, I can't even say it. Like, Get away from her, you bitch. You bitch. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so expertly delivered, right? And I, I think that they know, like, they would, uh, James Cannon, ha- he had to have known when he wrote that line that it was going to be remembered and revered, hopefully, right? Like, throughout time. If it is a job, right? Yeah. I mean, and like Sigourney Weaver has got a lot of lines, you know, throughout her career. But I mean, this one, I think if you just look at Sigourney Weaver's face, the first thing you think of is get away from her. Yep. bitch. I mean, like you, you have to. So perfection. And of course, she throws the queen out the airlock and, you know, all is well and they get to go to sleep. So, I mean, like, is airlock the only way to really get rid of these things at the end of the movie? I mean, like... That and a nuclear explosion and incinerators and guns, apparently. Yeah, because they, they can't, like, shoot it or blow it up because then everything's covered in acid and shit. All they can do is just, like, well, let it go out Robert, into space. the best story is rhyme, and this was poetry. <laughs> <laughs> Frosty and poetry. <laughs> So once that alien is drifting out to space, so do they have to drift out into space? So, you know, Ripley puts everyone into their little chambers and herself into a chamber and the movie ends. That's true. At the yeah. same way that it began mm-hmm. by people sleeping in space. Safe as houses. That's, yeah. <laughs> or so we think. So 
So I know we've talked about um, some scenes that were cut from the original theatrical version and put into the special edition, but I know that we've forgotten a couple. So what else was added into the theatrical version for the yeah, special so edition? I'm just going to run through the list real quick because I just I feel like you like cutting these scenes are just insane. So uh, yeah. the first one, obviously, Ripley discussing her daughter with Burke. That was completely cut from the theatrical theatrical release. You know, so we stupid, didn't know about stupid, it. Really. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, Ripley demoted by the board. Just an extra little detail. Uh, Newt's parents discovering the abandoned alien ship on LV-426. And I thought that was an amazing uh, you know, introduction to Newt and her family. And, and of course, the kickoff of, uh, of what happens on LV-426. Well, all of those three things are very important character motivations for both her and Newt. And I think without having these scenes as explanation, it sort of makes every emotion that they feel together, right? As, as a, a mother-daughter combo, hollow and silly and forced, mm-hmm. right? You have to have these sort of like, you know, explanatory issues to make them react to each other the way yeah. they do. Cause they were sort of like given a perfect set of circumstances in which to bond very quickly with each other. And I mean, I agree. I can't imagine why you would cut that out of this movie. And then we get a tour through the Sulaco uh, prior to the Marines waking up very similar to the beginning of alien, which is yes. also just paying homage and, and, and allowing that pacing and allowing the film to breathe a little bit and, and set the, the stage a little bit, which I love. Well, and also I think that's also really important. And why would you cut this? Because, you know, we talked a lot in our episode on alien last week about like the, like the visual storytelling overload that happens in the first, like, you know, five to 10 minutes of alien. Right. And so we have a lot of, you know, um, explanation, a lot of like expository stuff going on in the beginning of the sequel, but when they're asleep and starting to wake up, they're showing you the ship in the same manner and they're saying hey remember the first one right but we're the sequel and it's time to one up it and we got this and we got this and we got these right it's like showing off this huge like armory of defense that they have i mean because you have to already expect you know you know a movie that's called alien and one called aliens they're going to be up against like something so much greater than the original movie and what are they going to fight it with and it gives like an audience who already has a little inkling of the the villain or the monster like what they are capable of you know like in fighting it does mm-hmm. that make sense right i think it's incredibly important and i wouldn't have cut yeah. that either then we get hudson bragging about his weaponry which i thought was really great for him like it just seems like such a great character moment you know during the drop ship you know going down to the planet that you know i love that it ends up with like sharp sticks you <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> just gone through everything they possibly have but I mean, it really sets up his character for who he is too. And it's really funny. And God help me, I love a cocky guy. So I find it just a little attractive. <laughs> and then so. the beautiful moment where Ripley hesitates before she enters the colony complex on the planet. That was cut. Yeah. And yeah. Don't know why. Again, it's character motivation. And Come then of on. course the the entire sequence uh with the robot sentry guns repelling the the different the two different alien raids. And that you sort of can't cut that either because that like leads them to their like this is our only option moment right they are out of options by the time those guns have run out of bullets and powers mm-hmm. getting cut i mean like cutting that movie again takes motivation away from the end of it so and then of course the the scene where uh, hudson and vasquez are theorizing about the alien leader as the source of the eggs with bishop and sigourney and why cut foreshadowing i mean yeah. jesus and then uh, Hicks and Ripley exchanging first names, Ellen and Dwayne. 
<laughs> and I mean, like, as sort of corny as that is, it's almost like an exchange of vowel. You know what I mean? Well, they kind of almost had this goodbye moment before she goes and saves Newt, which I really, really liked that they had this like end cap moment because otherwise he's just unconscious on the ship after their whole sequence together and that wasn't great by itself and so no no i mean because there's there's already been like an extreme amount of flirting and like you know learn my weapon talk you know and he's down and they clearly have a connection they just needed to have an exchange of vow right it's like a romeo juliet moment you have to do something like that and that's all they could do at that exact moment they've called each other by their surname the entire time let's get just a little bit more personal and here's our names Mm -hmm. right i think that's incredibly pivotal again for character motivation i don't know why these scenes were cut well i also just like the entire thing between hicks and ripley and they're both giving each other a voice the entire movie he's asking if she's okay he's giving her a voice he's uh, doing what she's you know suggesting and she's the one that basically says hey you know hicks you're in charge now aren't you you know Mm -hmm. And so they're just self, uh, you know, they have, they basically affirm each other's position at any, at any, you know, opportunity and they support each other throughout this film. And I love it. Well, I think it's safe to say that the special edition is far superior than the theatrical one, right? Yeah. It's widely viewed as the definitive version and to James Cameron, of course, it's his best version. And I don't think that I would say the same of Alien. I think that the original theatrical version is much, much better than the director's cut. So You could almost say that for any Ridley Scott film because he does about five director's cuts for every fucking one of his movies. I mean, a lot of the scenes that he cuts are like superfluary. Like, you just don't need to have them, you know? And so, I mean, yeah. Except... The first cut for Blade Runner was trash, so I do have to say the definitive version of Blade Runner is better. That is true. So I know that we've talked in depth about some of these characters working through the many acts of the movie, but I think that, you know, we should take a time and, you know, discuss some of them individually and their performances by the actors who portrayed them. And who better to start with than Ellen Ripley, played by Sigourney fucking Weaver herself. That's right. I mean, at this point in our podcast, we're coming up on our two-year anniversary We've talked about her the most, I think. I mean, she comes up in episodes that she's not even in movies that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, clearly well, we she was in her. our very first episode. That's right. And we talked about her in Cabin in the Woods and now two times in July. So Sigourney Weaver, Sigourney fucking Weaver, excuse me, is definitely our queen. Well, let's talk about a little bit of the psychology behind this character, because why do you think she would go back ever? I I'm I mean I think that when you have survived something like that right and obviously she's she's faced with a tremendous amount of PTSD in this movie we get it from the nightmares right she wakes up like covered in sweat we see what some of her nightmares are firsthand we even see her going back to her memories right when she's watching things through the monitors and she's watching that that you know the alien burst from that colonist's chest and she grabs onto her own right she clearly has a lot invested into the situation right and so i think that she would go back not only to save the colonists and to prove herself right to the people who naysayed her but also maybe as some sort of closure right i mean like she obviously thinks that she hasn't finished the deal she killed that one alien in that movie but there's still all the eggs to contend with on that moon yeah, and James Cameron really wanted to do kind of a Vietnam allegory to this film, which we'll get into a little bit more later. And one of those things is that some Vietnam veterans um, with PTSD, et cetera, would you know, live through the most horrific things and yet keep signing up to go back and go back and go back, tour after tour, you know, 
And, you know, that was a phenomenon that has been since studied, you know, as almost like a way of, um, you know, that's all, you know, or even like self-imposed exposure therapy in a way, you know, to try and put your own power into the situation, you know? So I think that, I think that it's okay. I think the way he did it was masterful because he had to set up a situation just right for us to believe that she would go back. And I like that she does go out of her way to make sure. And first she says no, which is important for the audience, I think, for believability. And then, of course, she has to have assurances that they're not going to study. They're not going to bring back. They're there to, you know, go exterminate you know, these things. And so I, I, as, as far as that's concerned, I think the audience is on board with her hundred percent. Well, I mean, and, and like I said, I, I don't think that she would ever believe for the rest of her life that these creatures were completely exterminated until she saw with her own eyes or had a hand in their extermination. Right. And so she, she sort of has to go and like, you know, make the closure happen on her own. And I think that's important for this character, right? And I yeah. I also think that, I mean, by now we've sort of gotten to know Ellen Ripley and we know that she's fully capable in just about any situation. And, you know, as, a, as an audience member, I have no doubt that she can go back and, you know, will save the day, you know? And this is not coming from someone who's seen the, the aliens that come after this, the movies, right? <clears throat> so we, we know that she survives, but I mean... I honestly had no doubt that Ellen Ripley could go back into the situation and survive. And in fact, she like kicks ass even harder, you know, throughout this movie. There's another conversation that happens, you know, around Ripley's character in this movie um, that I've heard before, not very often, but I've heard it is that, you know, is Ripley's maternal instinct shown in this film feminist? Is that even an issue? I um, Is it a cheap shot to the audience? Like, no, I mean, like I, to me, it's, it seems secondary, right? I don't, it's, it's not something that I think of, you know, I, I, I would like to think that any number of those Marines would have found that girl and wanted to protect her. Right. Yeah. And I feel like this is also a discussion for the theatrical versus special edition as an example, because, you know, we do get that recurring motif with, you know, her daughter, you know, who had died, who was not in the theatrical version. We don't know the promise that was broken. Right. Uh, inadvertently by Ripley to her daughter, you know, and so there's a tie there. And I think it's less so in the special edition. Um, I don't think it's, this is sexist at all. And I, you know, I don't, I don't think this is a feminist issue or a non-feminist issue. I think it simply is. Well, and I mean, I, I, the scenes that are included in the special edition, I think sort of like further cement her motivations to do everything that she does for Newt, right? I mean, she obviously is trying to make up for time that she missed with her daughter and she has found a way to sort of redeem herself in both like destroying the aliens and, you know, you know, keep, keep living her life as a mother, right? She's, she's found someone to, to help her move through both issues, right? She gets closure on both things. And I think that's important for this character, especially moving forward in the franchise, right? So, well, I felt I, I've listened to at least one other podcast uh, with a feminist bent that really feels like Ripley's uh, maternal turn here is sexist and that it's unneeded and that in order to be like a whole woman, you have to have, you know, some sort of, you know, mothering instinct or at least a child or something. And that it's some sort of like, um, you know, nod to like the Reaganistic, you know, nuclear family you know, <laughs> idea at the time or something. I'm like, that's a little bit too far, you know, ladies. 
But, you know, to me, I feel like it's uh, the opposite. You know, I feel like you can be this assertive, powerful person and a leader with agency while still having maternal instincts and being a mother, you know, and everything else that goes along with it, you know, and, and I feel like she's a very whole person with or without that aspect. And I, I don't feel like it's a statement, you know, you know, or it's certainly not an anti-feminist statement. No, of course not. I mean, at the very least that, but I mean, I think that with Ellen Ripley, we are given a a very well-rounded character, something that we don't see oftentimes in horror or horror-adjacent movies, right? I think everything that she is as a person, as a character, is well thought out. I don't think that any of her actions come from some random place, right? And I... I certainly don't think of her as less of a woman if she weren't, you know, being a mother figure in this movie, right? I yeah. I mean like obviously we know that uh Ellen Ripley cares about other things than herself, right? She went back after the cat for God's sakes. You know what I mean? <laughs> like she she wants to she wants to save, she wants to rescue. I'm not even yeah. quite sure that's a maternal instinct. I think that she would want to save and rescue just about anybody. She had Newt right next to her and she took Newt with herself into danger to save those Marines. Yeah. So I mean, this is just who she is as a character. And I yeah, I don't I don't think it's a, a feminist issue. I don't I don't think it's a sexist issue either. I think I think it just really in this particular story helps the story move along and gives us an extra dimension to a character that we've already grown to, you know, trust and accept. And it's just a bonus, you know? Yeah. And listeners, if you have a different opinion, uh, please call our hotline or, you know, connect with us on social media or email us or something and let us know what you think. Yeah. We'd certainly like to know. So, but she was nominated for the Academy Award for this movie. And I know you talked about earlier, like, could it have been like the first ever for a genre film? And I, I think that, you know, it depends on what you would call a genre film, right? Yeah. But she mm-hmm. didn't win, you know? So. No. She was up against uh, Jane Fonda for The Morning After, Sissy Spacek for The Crimes of the Heart, and Kathleen Turner for Peggy Sue Got Married. Which is kind of a and genre film. I mean. They, you know, they all, you know, lost to whoever Marley Matlin is for children of a lesser God. Are you kidding me with this? You do- <laughs> <laughs> I will come across this computer monitor and beat you about the ear, nose and throat. Marley Matlin deserved to win that award. Okay. So okay. we'll just say that more than Sigourney fucking Weaver. Yes. Have you seen children of a lesser God? No. Oh, it's so good. But it, I mean, and I don't know who Marley Madeline is. Do you really not? She's deaf. No. She's really good in that movie. Oh, she's so good. I love Children of a Lesser God. That's a fantastic play. So, I mean, like, that's a really stacked year. So, out of all those movies, the only one I haven't seen is The Morning After with Jane Fonda. But Kathleen Turner for Peggy Sue Got Married was incredibly funny. That's sort of like a time travel-esque movie, right? I have not seen a single one. And Crimes of, of the Heart movies. is also really good. Sissy Spacek is just amazing. I mean, and she was nominated for a genre film back in the 70s, like 76 for Carrie, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't think an actress won for a genre film until Misery, and that is like very loosely genre, right? That's really horror yeah, adjacent. So the drama adjacent ones, I feel like, but obviously like Alien Aliens, they're not really drama adjacent. No. They're you know they're, they're flavors movies. of horror and yeah. you know certainly science fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, so I would say like hard genre, let's say. Like right. 
But I mean, securely in the genre. And I mean, and her being nominated for this, I mean, this is one of one of those instances where the nomination is the win, right? I mean, because I don't know that anybody expected that when they heard that Aliens was coming out, Sigourney Weaver's reprising her role, right? I don't think anyone thought, oh, for sure she's going to get an Oscar nomination this time. So I'm pretty sure that when people saw this movie, they were pleasantly surprised at the acting chops that, you know, she demonstrated. Although yeah. I mean, she was nominated before Aliens, right? I think she was nominated for the Year of Living Dangerously. And I mean, like she's already, you know, shown herself to be a varied and very talented actress, but stepping back into this role, the one that sort of made her famous or a household name in the first place, and then getting this sort of like surprise nomination for a very hard genre film, I think just speaks so highly to like the, the, the caliber of acting and just like how good this movie really is as a whole. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And if someone came from the future you know, and told me, hey, in a couple of years, Sigourney Weaver is going to come back, you know, and reprise her role as Ellen Ripley and win or get nominated for Academy Award. We'd be like, license slander. <laughs> and then I would say, can I come with you to the future and see this movie? For real, though. I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, well, well deserved. I think that I think she was excellent in Alien. I think she's even better in Aliens. Right. And I, I think that over time. What? I'm just remembering the the guy that wrote the first Alien movie. They were asked about the future of the series on the the special edition stuff for the Blu-ray, the fifth disc. Mm-hmm. And um, he was like, everyone had a different answer, you know, uh, cast and crew and directors and everyone. And he was like, how many used condoms do you need to stack on a shelf before you're done? <laughs> i was like my god and with that i turned off my tv and went to bed (laughs) so i'm not the only person who's needlessly graphic is that what you're trying to say (laughs) oh i don't even know what i was gonna say after that but i mean like sigourney weaver has really taken this role and sunk her teeth into it film after film after film and i think this is why people are sort of clamoring to see her back in aliens i know that ridley scott has made his two prequels and i mean i will go so far as to say i don't want to see another fucking aliens movie unless sigourney weaver's in it period well you know and if if i have to thank a single person for the character of ellen ripley i would not go back to the original writer of alien i would not go to ridley scott i would go to james cameron james cameron made this character who she is yeah and made her a fully fleshed out whole human being agreed agreed and i never thought that i would end up saying something like that you know but it took you know watching aliens again and i'm i'm right there with you i think that if if this movie weren't what it is you know i don't think there'd be an alien three you know but i mean we can talk about legacy later on in this episode we got to move on to paul riser because we have to have a villain in this movie and i mean while <laughs> yes we have xenomorphs running around alien queens you know depositing eggs left and right with her ovipositor i mean but we have an actual villain in paul riser's burke and this is the only character that james cameron says is overtly unrealistic because he you know true if they were true to type they would not have come along yeah 
Right. Although, I mean, like, I kind of disagree with that because that kind of person, the person who really wants that kind of money is going to make sure they get that cash. Right. So they would come along just to make sure that all their plans come to fruition. Right. But I think we know exactly what kind of character Burke is the first time we meet him, because any person who has to say to you, I'm really an okay guy is a fucking douchebag. And I mean, like, (laughs) just if you ever hear that in real life, just go the opposite direction. I mean, just stay away from them because they are douchey. <laughs> and he is kind of over the top. He's so slimy that his own sister in the premiere started hitting him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I kind of like Paul Reiser too. God help me, you know, but not quite in this movie. I think he's real fucking swarmy and just, not somebody that I like. He's like one of my most hated characters in film. I just do not like Bird. Yeah, he's also kind of supposed to look like an everyman, and he does. To the point where the crew thought he was, or sorry, the cast thought he was one of the crew. Really? And at, Yeah. <laughs> and in one of the first uh, shots of the Marines and everyone else, the cast started ac- asking him to leave the shot. Why are you in the shot? <laughs> Ruining the shot. Was this like, it must have been his like big break, right? I don't, <laughs> Yeah. was he like a comedian before this or something? I guess, I, I'm not sure, but this is, yeah, it's 86. I know? mean, he and, plays douchey well though. I mean, you really. When I think of his resume, I think of this. I think of his thing with Helen Hunt. Mad about show. you, yeah. Yeah, and then I think of Stranger, uh, Stranger Things season two or three or whatever it is. And that's it. Right. <laughs> I mean, pretty much mad about you and aliens like put him on the map and then he burned the map and just didn't work afterward. I don't know. <laughs> uh, he probably did plenty. You know, there's a lot of stage work that a lot of these people do, you know, but I don't know. I digress. Let's move on to Bishop played by Mr. Lance Henriksen, who we have met in person. Uh, well, you've met. I was I was getting someone else's autograph when you had that well, illustrious encounter with Lance Henriksen, right? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I love that story. So <laughs> <laughs> he's high as a kite, and he's trying to sign my name on you know, uh, not bad for a human, you know, a photo that he had available to sign uh, from Aliens. And of course you could get photos from him, like from like Pumpkinhead and a couple other genre films and, you know, stuff, Terminator even, um, you know, but it, <laughs> he, he misspelled Chris <laughs> and ripped up his own picture <laughs> and threw it behind him. And then someone had a baby. And, <laughs> and so he had to go mess with the baby. And then he came back, you know, to me and he was like, what's your name again? <laughs> <laughs> he was so high a lot of those people were at that place just to like survive a day of signing things in, in the middle of so exposed you know and to kind of debase yourself in that way i guess you know these people are just like on copious amounts of xanax i'm sure he was lovely though i mean like i i mean in his own way i guess yeah i mean man <laughs> i don't know I don't why i didn't go get anything. an autograph from him i love lance henriksen he's genre royalty he's horror royalty for real you're and too busy getting like made out to by like meg 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 ryan <laughs> oh meg, oh yeah i was in meg foster's line that's meg right foster. i had to pick and choose that day and god god bless meg foster i'm so glad that i went to her line you got a picture torn up and we're like sort of talking to a you. video and she's like and, kissing you and i got <laughs> like, like face raped my god i'm glad that was pre-covid because that would never happen now no no i'm glad i got my meg foster kisses while i could because no no i can't Mm -hmm. but yeah so anyway bishop 
you know, picking up the Android thread from the first film. And I love that it's a subversion, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of the expectation from the first film uh, separated from the, the threat of corporate greed. And I feel like this is like almost like a glimpse of human progress, you know, of, of, you know, you know, being able to create something that's not just tied in with everything else. Evil you know greed and he i mean he's fully aware of the androids that came before him synthetics you know um that had their issues and their problems and he was like nope there's no way in the world i could be evil and you know and she still doesn't trust him so he has to prove himself right in ways that he's only programmed to do i don't know I mean, it's a really good well, character. It's like i'm gonna go like basically almost stab bill paxton with a knife during this like finger game and then i'm gonna walk over 10 seconds later and tell ellen ripley that i could no way put a person at yeah, harm's way do you want some cornbread <laughs> it can't be bad he's giving her cornbread mm-hmm. <laughs> come on i do love that character though i, li- I like him quite a bit so. yeah he does such a good job i can't imagine almost anyone else doing it mm-hmm. which is always good to, to say of a character but uh yeah next we have hicks played by michael bean now cameron had all of the um the uh marines like um go through maneuvers and training and stuff for two weeks before uh, before filming and so the original person that was going to play hicks was james remar of the warriors cruising and dexter fame (laughs) and but was deemed unsuitable after creative differences with cameron and that was the story forever and so cameron was kind of like blamed as part of his like onset stuff but it turns out um you know that um that James Remar had been fired because he was arrested for possession of drugs mm-hmm. within that first week, you know? So they had to find someone. And so James Cameron had Gail Ann Hurd, his then wife at the time, and also the producer of this film and many others that we love um, called, you know, Michael Bean, who had been, you know, the lead in, ter- in the Terminator to come and play the role and say, okay, is your pass, is your passport in order? Come over. And so basically they called him on a Saturday. He showed up on Monday morning in London. Wow. You know, and just picked it up, had the wardrobe, the salary, the equipment <laughs> and everything else of James Remar and just played it. And he did such a good fucking job. I, I love him in that role. I like him in most things that I see him in. Like, I always forget about Michael Bean and, you know, I until I watch and him. An in excellent movie, antagonist yeah. in The Abyss. Right. And so I was just about to say, I mean, I, I liked him in the abyss, you know, I like him in Terminator. It's just he like I oftentimes will forget about him completely until I'm watching that movie and I'm reminded about how much I like him, you know, as, yeah. as an actor. And he's he's especially also good in, in genre work, you know. So mm-hmm. excellent, excellent choice. And then the wonderful Bill Paxton, rest in peace, as Aww. Hudson. So yeah, and <sighs> Man, he's like he was apparently like such like his character in real life, just so excitable that apparently he was with Michael Bean during the premiere, and they were like they're not supposed to see it yet, so they went to like the projection booth and watched it through the tiny little window, and uh, apparently uh, Bill Paxton was like jumping up and down saying, "It's a home run, man! It's a home run!" <laughs> 
I do not doubt that for a second. Oh my God. Yeah. He's so good in this movie. I mean, like I, half the time, I feel like he didn't even have a script. He was just like doing whatever he wanted to do, saying whatever he wanted to say. And that may or may not be the case, right? But he delivers his lines in such a way that it he feels like that. it's ad-libbed, you know? He said that he ad-libbed a lot of it. They, they let him do a lot of his own stuff. And so a lot of those one-liners come from him. That's amazing. And I mean, I've loved Bill Paxton in lots of different movies, right? I mean, like frailty and like what uh, she directed twister you know and like i just i i think he's he's a gifted actor i think he's really good with action and i think he's good with comedy he's just a fun guy to watch you know and he's just like Mm -hmm. he's got this really like a lovable face that you want to just go up and like squeeze for a minute you know (laughs) i just love bill paxton so much he's incredibly missed oh yeah definitely Horrible that he's gone. So we also have uh, Vasquez, which I think may be my favorite character second to Ellen Ripley in Aliens. I like Vasquez a lot. And she is played by Jeanette Goldstein, who was also in Terminator 2 as uh, the kid's stepmom. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she was also in Titanic as an Irish mother. And let's not forget her work in Near Dark. So Yeah, Near Dark. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Like she's she's all over the place, you know, when it comes to some genre work. But she's also she's like a chameleon character actress, right? Mm-hmm. She can do just anything, as far as I'm concerned. Especially in some of these like you know mid '80s action horror movies, I think that she she shines, and I think that her characters are incredibly memorable. And it's not just because of the character that was written; it's what she brings to each character that she portrays. You know, I guess start like mm-hmm. Diamondback and Near Dark is again my favorite character out of that movie, and I I love Vasquez in this movie so i mean i think she's just like like tops really she really is and you know she wasn't actually i i believe she wasn't even an aspiring actor you know Uh, she was kind of like she was an american living in london and um i believe she was like you know body lifting and stuff at that point Mm -hmm. and she went in for this huge casting call they 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 saw like over three thousand people and she was one of the ones that they with that they caught you know i um was listening to there's a podcast that she's interviewed on and I, I can't remember which podcast it is but i mean she she really goes through like her whole history and why she started acting and how she landed the role in this movie and and then others like subsequent and i mean she's a well-spoken woman she's obviously very educated right but um i, I the thing is is that like today if we were making aliens today and they cast a white person in a Latinx role, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, dude, I, I don't know if that would fly. Yeah. Do we need to talk about brown face here? Yeah. Because they darkened her face to match her freckles so they would blend. And she dyed her hair and she wore contact lenses to make her look Latina. And, you know, she she is, uh, her background is that she's Jewish, Uh you know, her family comes from Russia, Morocco, and Brazil. So there is some Latin in there. But, you know, is she brown facing here or was she white facing a Titanic? I mean, it's either thing acceptable, you know? Like, I, I cannot, because I mean, Aliens is the, the movie that we, we have and what we see, right? And I can't imagine anybody else playing her, right? And I mean, I'm sure that there are, were plenty of, you know, Latina actresses 
at the time to, to well, play. Well, it's not necessarily true because this film, because it was shot in London, especially at the time, they had to interview or audition every available actor or actress that could do even a passable American accent mm. before they were legally able to even approach people in America. So a lot of the cast here were either Americans living in England that they just happened upon because they could do perfect American acts because they were American, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, or they had to call in at, you know, the last minute or something because they went through 3000 people, you know, and they finally got Carrie Hinn that way too. Um, they went to schools and interviewed kids at all, like hundreds of schools and finally found Carrie Hinn who happened to have like a, you know, a British dad and, and an American mom, you know, so she could do the the accent or vice versa or something like that. And so, you know, they happened upon this person that, you know, could speak an American accent, could basically do, you know, different uh, lineage or whatever uh, backgrounds. And I think that, you know, I'm not sure, but I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm thinking that at the time in in the eighties, there probably wasn't too many like American accented Latin X people living in England. Sure. No. Yeah, probably not. I would imagine. So the only other like, you know, Latina actress that that was doing action movies at the time would be uh, Maria Cachita Alonso, who was in the running man with Arnold Schwarzenegger, like in 1987. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, so she was doing some like actiony type work, but she's, she's nothing like the character of Vasquez, you know? And so I don't know. It's just one of those debates. Right. I'm just saying they couldn't, they couldn't call America and get like Rita Marino over, you know, to to step in. So I, I mean, like, I don't, um, I haven't really come across a lot of people like complaining about Jeanette Goldstein's portrayal either, though. You know, I think so, most people think that she just is Latina. You know, yeah. I think that sh- that that is that convincing. Um, you know, but at the same time, you know, none of these are great excuses. Most of this is just situational. It was also a different time. Um, that's also an excuse. But you know, at the end of the day, they should have gotten a Latinx, you know, actress to play it. But at the same time, I love what Jeanette Goldstein did here. And I have to agree. I, I, I really, really enjoy her character. I think she's a very special part of this movie. And I mean, like, she she's she's there for the action. She's also there for the heart, you know? She's got great lines, and I think that she delivers them well. And when she won that, you know, Saturn Award for Best Supporting Actress or was nominated, I mean, like, that's sort of well-deserved, you know? So, I mean, like, yeah. good for her. That would, and hopefully that would never happen in today in 2020. I don't think that it would actually. So, you know, um, but you know, I, I felt like we had to mention it. So we talked a little bit about uh, Newt's character played by Carrie Han just now, right? People searching for her and finding the right one, you know, and even her American accent, I think is a little questionable. Yeah. In movie, places. So. Yeah. <laughs> and specific words. Other, other times she's fine. Yeah. But um, I mean, like I I like I liked her in this movie too. She's a cute little girl, and she I mean she also has a lot of emotional range in this movie. She adds a lot of heart. So mm-hmm. they 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 saw so many children for this, and and all of them were saying their lines and then smiling because they were trained to smile, you know. And <laughs> and she was one of the only ones that didn't, you know. She would say the lines and she would stay in character, and she could also do an American accent for the most part most part mostly and <laughs> mostly and uh, yeah and she you know got a real bond with Sigourney Weaver on the set um because they had so much time just one-on-one together and you know after all the other characters would get killed off you know they were there for weeks and weeks and weeks together just them and uh Sigourney kind of 
became a surrogate mother to her in a way, and they still stay in touch. Uh, although uh, Carrie Henn decided not to continue acting and ended up a math teacher. Really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you say that they would deliver the lines and smile, I just keep thinking of her going, they're dead, okay? And then smiling like, theme. You yep. mean she's dead. Theme. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. Uh, so next up, we have Sergeant Epone, uh, played by Al Matthews. And I think that he is also just phenomenal in this movie. He oh makes me laugh. And makes me cry in this movie. So I was just thinking of um, Claudia from Interview with a Vampire. <laughs> Let's place Claudia from Interview with a Vampire in Aliens. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have half a mind to throw this hot chocolate right in your face, Ripley. <laughs> I wanted to be her. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> it won't make any difference. Mostly. Even though you're the prince of lies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. So yeah, let's talk about Sergeant Apone a little bit, played by Al Matthews. He was an actual decorated Marine, and I believe the uh, the first African American Marine to actually make Sergeant. God really? Yeah. That seems crazy to me. But I mean I mean he certainly memories, acted yeah. like a Marine in this movie. He did, like I he... believe several tours in Vietnam. He had like two or three purple hearts and Jesus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he was a part of their training and everything. And then he got to play it on screen. There's a line in this movie. There's a scene in this movie, right? Because he's he's a hard ass, right? Like you would expect any sort of drill sergeant to be, you know, when he's like uh when Hudson's like, this floor is cold. And he's like, do you want me to fetch your slippers for for you or whatever? I mean, he, he like delivers those lines perfectly. But when they're just about to get onto that, that tank car hybrid and they're like running up and they're in formation, he's screaming at them and he's walking down the line and looking and he was like, absolute badasses, right? I mean, just like he delivers it in such a way or maybe I was just so compelled by the moment that I started to weep a little bit. I was just like, it's like a father figure to them. He cares about his like, crew in a way that Gorman doesn't right and it's just like incredibly touching to me I think that his character is is great and I think that they also love him very much right because they are worried about him when he's lost and I I think that even Hudson probably would have gone back to get him after he stopped like complaining about having to go back to get him you know yes you know without you know the trouble of gender constraints I almost want to call him a mother hen yeah you know, because he's just like, secure that shit, Hudson. <laughs> Get over Come here, here. Get Hudson. Over Come here. here. <laughs> yes, he's just so good in this movie. Just so good. I love it. He delivers his lines so well. I mean, like if he has an actual Marine turned actor or whatever, I mean, like that is an impressive acting debut. If this was his first film, I don't know. So... But from the mother hen to the one who doesn't even know how to lead people and yet is a higher rank than Sergeant Apone. Lieutenant Gorman, played by William Hope, who actually mostly did stage work, although he was in Hellraiser 2. But we don't really see much of him anymore after this movie and Hellraiser 2. It's just a, a bunch of stage work. And I think that's where he preferred to be. But the But the character, you know, you almost pity the character more than you hate him, you know? Yeah. And he does kind of come full circle. And I like that he has an ending, you know, that he has a worthy ending, that he gets some, 
you know, he gets a chance to kind of show that he can he can do something for his for his troop. He does come full circle, and I think that's really good for his character. I think it's also a really touching scene with him and Vasquez where they have their hand wrapped around the grenade, right? And I mean, you always wear an asshole, go on, man. <laughs> I mean, so I mean, she, of course, she would get the last word, and I think that's good. I think at that point, he would let her have the last word because, you know, right before his death, I think he even sort of like just let Hicks sort of take command. He was just like, okay, whatever, you know, and I mean, he was concussed. But I, I mean, I, I like the way that his character ended up. Mm-hmm. And also when they're coming out of stasis and he's standing there like sort of shirtless or whatever, he's got a really nice body. Well, let's uh, talk about the look, feel, you know, design and kind of some of the technical design of, of the, the film. Okay. While the original alien creature designs were uh, still utilized H.R. Giger's work. From the first film, uh, along with inspiring the look of the alien hive in this one, the alien queen was designed by James Cameron himself. It stood at 14 feet tall. Jesus. It was operated using a mixture of puppeteers, control rods, hydraulics, cables, and a crane above to support it. Two puppeteers were inside the suit operating its arms, and 16 people were required to move it. All sequences involving the full-size queen were filmed in camera, with no post-production manipulation. That's incredible. So, <laughs> <laughs> And it's why it got so many awards, along with so many other things in the film. When I was in elementary school, um, we had a field trip to the Fort Worth Museum of Science and History, right? And I don't remember what was on exhibit at that particular point, but they were sort of teasing the next exhibit that was coming, and that was like magic in the movies or special effects. And so they had the uh, loader, right, or some sort of replica of it built, and they had an alien queen sort of like built around it too. And so as we were coming into the museum, we got to see this, and I was so disappointed that we had no movie magic for the rest of the thing. I was just like, you can't tease me with this shit, especially since I had seen the movie by then. I was just like, Jesus Christ. But yeah, like seeing something like that in real life – like, it was massive at the museum. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I can only imagine what they would have created for this particular movie. That sounds amazing. Well, despite industry awards and, you know, the respect it has, Aliens isn't really viewed widely as a design achievement because much of the film's science fiction elements are so grounded in real-world industrial and military design. But the sets, ships, equipment, weapons, and especially the exosuit cargo lifter thing that Ripley wears at the end of the film and her battle with the alien queen were actually quite groundbreaking at the time. And uh, one of my favorite little anecdotes is uh, their first week they shot like the outside exterior of the hive pan down and, and look at the, the Marines kind of entering the hive. Mm-hmm. So when the Fox execs saw an early cut um, of that, they complained to the producer Galen Hurd that it looked like the money had been all spent on the sets rather than special effects and that they would have nothing left. So she took great delight in telling the execs that the majority of the sets they were seeing in the film were indeed actually miniatures or optical effects. <laughs> and the artists behind these images were very pleased that their work had been, had fooled the money men. So yeah, they literally shot that, that shot where you see the entire thing is panning down. They're panning down a miniature and through the hole of the miniature, you can see the actual set behind Mm -hmm. and it's an optical effect. And so they had thought they had built that whole set. (laughs) And so, so many of those things are invisible in the film and some aren't invisible at this point, you know, but it gives me, uh, you know, a lot to, to think about as far as like the technical achievements of the film. 
Well, and I think this is why I like this movie so much as both horror and science fiction. It's because I've said on this podcast before that I enjoy my science fiction to be grounded in reality, right? I don't want to have to think too far outside of what technology already exists in order to accept the story. And there's literally nothing in this movie that I think is so far outside of reality that it couldn't exist like today or even back then. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm surprised that some of these things don't exist, really. Another thing I love is Stan Winston's, you know, involvement. And he was actually a second unit director on this film. Right. Hmm. And so, yeah. And so uh, his team created fully articulated face huggers that could move their fingers. Right. And so like, like almost like a wind up toy. So that's how you can see the thing, not CGI, not claymation or stop motion mm-hmm. coming across the floor and then jumping onto a, onto a chair and then jumping again and wrapping its tail. So a lot of that was, forward motion of that thing mixed with uh, the other like bendable face huggers in reverse photography. So they were all just shot and James Cameron just knew how to do that on the day. Just like, I'm going to splice all these together. You're not going to be able to tell that it's raining like the, the fire extinguisher stuff from the ceiling. You're just going to be able to see like the texture of it hitting the ground. And so, cause a lot of the crew was like, ah, actually James Cameron, you're not going to be able to do this because it's <laughs> happening. And he was like, no, because of the film stock we're using, we can't, we, we're going to do this, this and this. And so James Cameron could do basically everyone else's job, you know, and he was just expecting everyone to do it as good as he could. And he was doing all of the stuff in his head. And so he, that, that scene of the facehugger coming after her across the room, running across the floor, it looks so realistic even today because it was all in camera. And it, it does look realistic. And in fact, like just those scenes alone made that particular, you know, version of the, the xenomorph or the alien so much more like scary and believable. Because in the first alien, all we see is it like leaping from an egg and attaching to a face and we see a tail tightening and that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Everything else that we get from the face hugger is when it's dead already. But aliens makes this a, a clear and present like danger to these people in the, in the sense that it can move and uh, when they're trying to like detach it from Ripley's throat once it's like surrounded it right and they've pulled it and you could see that tail just trying to latch on to anything it could possibly get it's so much more ferocious so much more dangerous and evil than it is in the first movie and I think mm-hmm. that's something that this movie does to great effect I think it takes a lot of the the villains the monsters and just like ran everything up like times 10 or even higher than that to make it just like that much scarier more visceral yeah yeah there's a lot of reverse uh shots and a lot of it was on the fly in the film like one of my other favorite examples is when they're getting back into the the personnel carrier from you know all the shit hitting the fan you know they're all trying to escape and the alien tries to get in to the door and uh, Hicks has to come up with a shotgun, put it in its mouth and go eat this, you know, and shoot it. He couldn't make it in the mouth. And it was during a, you know, this big action scene with everyone's moving around and everything. He couldn't smoothly get it into the alien's mouth, especially because it had that inner mouth, you know? Mm-hmm. And so James Cameron was just like, after two or three takes, he was like, Oh, it's okay. We'll just do it in reverse. So he started the shot with the gun in the mouth and pulled it out and just said the words kind of backwards. Oh and God. that's the shot that you get in the movie. And he just did it like just a decision right then and there. It's so fucking brilliant. It really is brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) 
But I think that uh, any conversation about Alien or Aliens would be remiss if we didn't talk about its score, because I know that you love them both very yes, much. Yes, and I love Jerry Goldsmith's score. You know, rest in peace. All my fucking favorite composers are dead, I swear to God. So, yeah, J- Jerry Goldsmith's score for Alien was amazing, you know, and a lot of it wasn't able to be really used in the film, which I hated, you know. Um, but it works, whatever. Whatever they did, it worked. And so they came to James Horner, um, and they hadn't really, I mean, they worked on like Terminator before, right? This uh, Galen Hurd and, and, and James Cameron, and they hadn't really worked with an actual like composer, composer, orchestral, right? The guy that did Terminator, I think, was just like one keyboard, <laughs> one key, one <laughs> finger on the keyboard and a time synthesizer, right? It's kind of like, that's kind of just like the theme for Terminator. It's very simple synthesizer and when they got to the orchestral you know that was needed for this they didn't really know how to work with someone and and they were up against you know time and they were kind of behind they eventually you know got everything on schedule and under budget you know but they didn't call him in until six weeks uh, before theatrical release and no dubbing had taken place uh, and the score had not been written as Horner was not able to view the completed film the final cue uh, for the scene in which Ripley battles the alien queen was written overnight. Oh my god. Cameron completely reworked the scene, leaving Horner to rewrite the music from then, too. And he had already stayed up 24 hours writing because he was getting cuts and recuts of the film. And he wasn't, you know, he has to make these cues down to a hundredth of a second, you know, to get them right after an alien is killed or someone, you know, has to react to something, you know. And so the mixer was working overtime, too. The editor was was moving over time and back then they were editing on the film itself because there was no digital tools right and so for editing they had to just edit in the film itself so you know gail heard didn't have much music production experience and she and cameron denied horner's request to push back the film four weeks so he could finish the score so the score was recorded in roughly four days jesus despite his troubles horner received an academy award nomination his first for best original score and the score that he wrote in about, you know, just overnight and had to redo was Bishop's Countdown. And it's one of the most used musical cues for trailers and even other films of all time. But Horner said that his tensions between him and Cameron were so high during post-production that he assumed they would never work together again. Uh, Horner believed that Cameron's film schedules were too short and stressful, and the two parted uh, until 1997, when Cameron was so impressed with Horner's score for Braveheart that he asked him to compose the score for Titanic. And of course, Horner would go on to do the score for Cameron's Avatar before tragically dying in a plane crash in 2015. He was on his way to give free lessons to film score students. Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> yeah. Um, I the differences between the two scores in these movies are just as vast as the differences between the two movies themselves. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I like them individually for what they are, and um, I think they just they fit really well. You know, like we talked about the score in Alien in the last episode, and some of its more quiet, haunting cues, right? And I think that Aliens is a little bit more bombastic, a little bit more like militaristic, right? And as it should be, because this is what the movie is dealing with, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I think they they both fit just so perfectly, 
Right. I mean, if I had to, to pick one to just listen to more often than the other, I'd probably go with Alien. But well, it's more I, calming. That's for yeah, sure. I like things a little bit more calming. You know, I also like some bombastic music too, though. So I mean, but they just they fit so so well, and everything you just talked about is like flabbergasting to me that someone can make a score so incredibly perfect as the score for Aliens is in that short amount of time under that kind of duress. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's just amazing. So let's get into the history and background of the film a little bit more. So as we know, they wanted to make a sequel almost immediately. And of course, sequels back then weren't that common, right? And it weren't that obvious to do. We started getting more and more sequels like in the 90s and 2000s, especially today, right? Where it's almost obvious that if something does well enough, it's just, you know, you're printing money, you know? So, But back then that wasn't necessarily the case. And I love that James Cameron was so respectful and Gil and Hurd were so... Pre- you know, respectful of the original film that they didn't want to just make a remake. Like that was kind of expected. You're just kind of put her in in a kind of a similar situation, like so many sequels do and try and strike, you know, strike that lightning again. And instead they, they didn't even want to do the same genre in a way they didn't, they wanted to go as far away from the original as they could. That made sense. Um, They thought it was, perfect for slow suspenseful horror and they didn't even want to try and top it in that regard they thought it was perfect on its own and they wanted to do something different um just as you know as much for themselves as out of respect for the original film and he wanted to make his own film you know and he wanted to to focus more on terror and less on horror and the suspense of the original film i mean i know that like sequels were happening in the 80s you know especially in the horror genre i think that was pretty much the only genre yeah. that there were sequels happening in and they were they were doing it you know at the detriment of the franchise itself they were just like mass producing some of these like friday the 13th halloween movies i mean there's even a, a longer period of time between like the two nightmare on elm street movies right and you can see like the quality that comes from like the differences in franchises right but well, i think, I think that, that had just started happening though right i mean this is a mid-80s thing and so i think that the success of aliens as a sequel to a horror horror adjacent you know sci-fi movie sort of like brought on the onslaught of sequels afterward they're like well if aliens can do it and make all this money then let's make as many sequels as possible to these franchises that are already started right Mm -hmm. and so i think like post 1986 we see sometimes every single year every other year a new friday the 13th a new nightmare on elm street a new halloween and new something right this really started this whole like sequel boom mm-hmm. in the mid and late 80s you know and i almost wonder if star wars and kind of indiana jones a little bit also kind of were precursors to that because star wars came out in 77 and then and then empire i think came out in 1980 yeah and i you know but to me like those movies sort of have like an end game in mind right mm-hmm. and so does aliens right i don't know that you know they wanted a sequel to Alien, and we, we got Aliens, which is a very, very good sequel. And I think that a lot of people thought, well, if the series doesn't move forward after this, it's okay, right? And the difference is some other these franchises that just kept growing and growing and growing, and we see like the, the sub subpar quality of some of the movies that they created in the wake of them, you know, is just a 
abysmal. Well, that's an interesting point that you made because, you know, Star Wars kind of had a direction and a big story that George Lucas wanted to make, and it would not have been made. None of the sequels would have been made if they hadn't, you know, the first one hadn't been so successful, yeah. you know, and some of these like serialized stories like Indiana Jones. And then you've got, um, you know, like Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween and stuff where they almost set up for sequels in a way versus if you look at the Alien franchise, virtually every film outside of uh, Prometheus is made to be standalone. Yep. Which is interesting, I think. I mean, it's like saying, it's like creating a TV series and say, you know, this this could be the last season we get to make. Let's go ahead and end it. And if we have another season, then we start afresh based on where it left off or whatever. They have a complete beginning and, and end in mind for the movie. And they, they close each particular story yeah, out. Yeah, it's like you know? each, you know, five to ten years, another, you know, directorial, like, ingenue mm-hmm. gets their turn to put the used condom on the shelf. <laughs> They're pretty good ingenues, though. So, I mean, like, yeah, I, I mean, I we've mean, got Fincher and, you know, we've got James Cameron and we've got Ridley Scott and we've got the director. I forget the, his his uh, name, the French director that did went on and did like Amelie, you know. Right. Yeah. I mean, like they and they have made some pretty amazing movies post their alien work. You know, mm-hmm. I think that they like the directors are chosen very seriously when they make these movies. But whenever we see a new alien movie, we should be excited about it because it's not as you know like some sort of loose cannon factory where they're just making whatever fucking movie they want to make you know Mm -hmm. at the the detriment to the series itself and i think that cameron like we talked about paid a lot of homage to the original alien he was just like let's one up it and go in a different direction Mm -hmm. and i think that's a good way for anybody who makes a sequel to go in so i mean like kudos to him for that for sure i really love the idea of neil blonkamp's um idea of taking you know ignoring alien 3 ignoring uh, resurrection kind of in the same vein that halloween did you know right. it's reboot in a way you know and taking them back and doing his thing with them i saw a lot of the previs for that and it just looked really good you know and i'm really sad that ridley scott just shut it all fucking down with his with his bullshit but you know i know there's a lot of fans listening to us that love prometheus and covenant so i'm sorry um but we'll we'll eventually get to those I need to talk about Sigourney fucking Weaver again, obviously. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Alien was kind of her, you know, big break in film, right? And meanwhile, she'd been working, you know, from 1979 to 1986. You know, she was yeah. working on like two films right before this. She literally wrapped her uh, previous film three days later. She was on the set for Aliens. Um, but she had rejected numerous offers from Fox Studios to do sequels, you know, at least to talk about the sequels for, for Alien, uh, fearing that her character would be poorly written and a subpar sequel that could hurt the legacy of Alien from 1979. And, you know, it's it's maybe not obvious in hindsight, if you're looking at Alien, she became the lead by the end of the film, but she could easily take a back seat, you know, in, a, in a more sequels or even not even appear. You know, so it wasn't that obvious back then. After Aliens, it was firmly cemented that Ripley was, you know, you know, the owner of the franchise, essentially, right? But she was so impressed by the high quality of James Cameron's script, specifically the strong focus on Ripley and the mother-daughter bond between the character her character and Newt, and the incredible precision with which Cameron wrote her character, that she finally agreed to do the film. Well, and <clears throat> I'm so glad that she did, too, because I <laughs> Again, I think that by the end of Alien, I think we know that that Ripley is the main character in that movie, and we, any sort of like storyline really should involve her 
as far mm-hmm. as I'm concerned. You know, I think that we've, we've gone to places in the franchise now that we don't have to have Ripley, but it still makes it so much more interesting for me if that particular character is involved. And like when I think about a xenomorph, I think about her as well. They're almost synonymous, you know, and that's just exactly what I want to see. In and she would work with Cameron. She would work with him on her on her lines and her script. And, and she would say, well, I think Ripley, you know, I've been in the subspace for a while. I've been thinking about her, this character for a while. And I think she would do this or she would say this. And so, you know, as long as she went along with Karen's Cameron's direct um, direction for the story and everything, he was listening to her and he would make numerous changes based on what she, you know, provided to him. Um, and, you know, they formed, you know, a pretty strong bond and has continued to work with you, have continued to work with each other throughout the years. So, um, or at least returning to work with him on Avatar at the very least. And she's going to be in the upcoming Avatar movies, right? Mm hmm. I think so. She did ask for higher pay this time around. And um, rightfully so. She was a know, big star by then. One million with the percentage of the profits. And so Fox asked Cameron to write an alternate screenplay without her. What? He, yeah. <laughs> he utterly refused, saying that they should pay her like she asked. And eventually they relented and Sigourney signed on. But they they literally told them, they said, we're, we're sure you'll find someone else that can write this uh, and direct it, but we won't be your people if Ripley is not involved because that's our story. This movie would have been so bad <laughs> without Cameron or Weaver. Mm-hmm. Like, for real, though. I just can't can't understand it. But Cameron really wanted to base off this whole story as kind of like an allegory to Vietnam with a hidden, unconventional enemy that defies conventional attack. And, you know, it's associated military cockiness. James Cameron said their training and technology are inappropriate for the specifics. And that can be seen as analogous to the inability of superior American firepower to conquer the unseen enemy in Vietnam. A lot of firepower and very little wisdom. And it didn't work. That pretty much sums up that war in a nutshell. You know, and I love the lines that Ripley and Newt have. You know, these people are here to protect you. They're soldiers. And Newt says it won't make any difference. It's bleak. There was a lot of like Vietnam esque movies that came out right around the same time, like Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, mm-hmm. right? I mean, so there there was a lot of uh, revisiting of the Vietnam War in cinema, especially in like, like sort of allegory form, or even just like right there in the subject and the plot, you know. So I, it's not too far off of him wanting to to do this sort of thing in, in a genre film, mm-hmm. and I think that it lends a little bit more credibility if you have to look below the surface to sort of find the connections right instead of like writing your face about it yeah well they even you know designed like a lot of the the, you know aircraft and like everything else to kind of be slightly psychologically reminiscent of a lot of the equipment and you know helicopters and equipment and stuff that they would use in vietnam you know to kind of give you that uh subtle kind of leaning towards towards that so if there was an allegory to the film, it was very purposeful. Well, I mean, in some of that like connection between the like the mechanics, like you talked about, like the the, the drop ships and things like that, look very much like the things they used in Vietnam. It's not even that far of a stretch. <clears throat> there were some times in the movie, especially when its wings are folded up and it looks like a helicopter, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's not until it starts to unfold itself that it looks even remotely futuristic. So a lot of it 
looks you know like it like past like it's used before and then we talked about that in our alien episode too sort of like a used universe right yeah. and so if he's like talking about a war that happened in the past and if we're fighting a current war of course we're going to be using some of the same mechanics that we'd be using from those wars in the past i mean and so it's just pretty masterful that some of the set design and some of like the equipment that they built would sort of mirror the things that happened in the most recent american war to this movie as we mentioned before, Aliens was filmed over 10 months on a budget of $18 million at Pinewood Studios in England. Cameron was bound by low budget and a deadline and found it difficult to adjust, you know, to the working practice of the British crew, such as the tea breaks that, <laughs> you know, brought production to a halt. You know, nowadays, like these sets have like uh, craft services that have like tables of shit all the time around, mm-hmm. you know, but back then this this person with the cart you know would come around twice a day and so everyone would just kind of break as soon as that person came in <laughs> and leave their jobs and do whatever you know and so of course cameron was not used to that and there was a lot of drama you know and that was just one of those little things and um a lot of the crew had actually worked on alien and were fiercely loyal to Ridley Scott and believed that the 31, the then 31 year old Cameron was too young and inexperienced to direct a sequel. Right. And in response, he arranged a screening of the Terminator several times, of course, which had not been yet released in the UK, but a lot of the crew like just didn't go. They never attended. They kind of struck it. Yeah. They wouldn't even go (laughs) look at it. And he tried to schedule a couple of them. They also mocked, you know, the producer Galen Hurd insisting that she was only receiving the producer credit because she was married to Cameron. So there was a lot of that back talk going on and, and people just, you know, breaking and doing their own thing. And, um, you know, Cameron also clashed with the original director of photography, Dick Bush, you know, when he started production saying the schedule couldn't be met. And when he insisted on lighting the alien nest set brightly, Cameron insisted on a dark foreboding nest relying on the lights from the Marines armor. So after Bush was fired, <laughs> the crew walked out. <laughs> Galen Hurd had managed, uh, did manage to coax the team back to work. And, you know, Adrian Biddle uh, was hired as Bush's replacement. But, you know, that was a that was a big hit to morale. And the crew was many of the crew. I can't say all, but uh, many of the crew were constantly complaining and fighting Cameron on virtually everything, having no faith in him to make a quality film. Needless to say, we know who got the last laugh. I would love to go back and like talk to some of these crew and be like, so what do you think now? I mean, like, I mean, aren't you sad that you had so much tea? Yeah, I mean, come on. I mean, he's made like eight films and has won like forty Oscars from them. So I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I like almost all of them. Yeah. So, final thoughts before fun facts. Um, do you feel like Aliens suffers from sequelitis? Uh, no. In fact, I think that other sequels should be, you know, hoping to be what Aliens is. Like, I. <laughs> it's so hard for me to imagine these two movies being together in the same franchise because they're so incredibly different, right? But I think that Aliens does what every sequel should do. It should take the original story and should just ramp everything up so high and take all the expectations that you have going into it and both like fulfill them and give you things that you could only imagine would happen in a movie or a sequel to to something that came previous. So, I mean, like, where do you stand on this? Well, the fact that he changed genres, essentially, for this makes it to where they're almost hard to compare in a way. 
you know, and you could you could look at almost any sequel, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Halloween. They don't change genres. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Generally, sometimes they go a little out there. They get a little bit more sci-fi or a little bit more fantasy, like Dream Warriors or something like that. Right. You know, but they don't change tone in such a hardcore way, but still serve the characters and the story so well. The fact that they they really paid homage, but still did not want to make you know, essentially a remake sequel, uh, but did completely their own thing, you know, makes it, I feel like immune from the conversation of sequelitis or the tendency of any well-received work to spawn inferior sequels. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they, they are, like you said, they're just two very different films, you know, and it's like, it's almost like too hard to compare them, but I mean, it is a direct sequel to that movie, obviously, because mm-hmm. there are characters and creatures that came from that original work, you know, yep. so, but I think that it's something that sequel should live up to, and I will firmly stand on that ground, you know, till the, the day I die, I'll die on that hill. But speaking of uh, that hill, there is an eternal battle. Is Aliens... As good as Alien. And I don't. I mean, so... Yeah, uh, uh, yeah it's so just... I don't know how to answer that question, really. I good. mean... That's acceptable and that's, answer. And that's the thing, is that like I like both movies for what they are individually, you know? Over the course of time, I will choose to watch one more often than the other. I think that one of the two movies is sort of like squarely in the the genre of film that I choose to watch more often and the other one's a little bit more actiony you know and and I tend to miss those movies a lot it doesn't mean that I don't like them it just means I don't watch them as often and when I do go back them and watch them I'm like pleasantly surprised to like recover the memories of why I liked it in the first place or to even find things that I liked more about it because it's been such a long period of time right mm-hmm. so it's not even a question of which one I like more you know, or which one is better. It's just that, which one do I want to watch on that particular day? Yeah. To me, it's like, if I was to be asked, you know, what's the pinnacle of sci-fi horror? And I would say alien and aliens. And what's the pinnacle of sci-fi horror, like suspense or, you know, and I would say alien. What's the pinnacle of sci-fi horror, like action, you know, it's aliens, you know, no, no movie has surpassed them in their own specific genres or subgenres since. Although I'm sure that there are many people listening to this podcast right now who have a clear favorite amongst the two, you know? And so, like... And that's fine. And I would say that, you know, like, maybe you and I are, like... We were not the sole people who feel the same way about this, but I'm sure that some people just prefer one movie to the other, and that's perfectly fine, too. Well, before my recent rewatches, my analogy that I used to use was, like, Alien is the better film. Aliens is the better movie. Yeah. Right? It's just that choice of noun. And, uh, you know, one's more poppy, one's more action, you know, uh, but just because something strikes a chord with, you know, pop culture doesn't necessarily mean it's less artistic. So I almost want to distance myself from my own analogy there, you know, and, and just say, you know, they're both kind of different subgenres. They both have their own fingerprint. They both left their imprint, you know, on film, <laughs> And I feel like they're both equal, you know, titans amongst their own subgenres. And uh, I feel like it's okay to, to say that. All right. So I know that you promised some fun facts before those final thoughts. So what you got for me? I'm really interested to hear some more alien fun facts or aliens in this case, I guess. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a lot. And I was kind of surprised because I thought I knew everything. <laughs> okay. What you got? Dunning-Kruger effect. Um, 
The spear gun Ripley used at the end of Alien uh, is briefly visible in the opening scenes while the escape pod door is is, uh, being cut open. Still stuck at the bottom of the escape pod door where the gun jammed 57 years earlier. I didn't even see that. (laughs) Also, uh, Lance Henriksen had privately pledged to quit acting if this part didn't work out for him after years of journeyman roles. It proved to be one of his most successful films. I think it's probably one of the ones that he's most remembered for if not the most yeah so the knife trick scene with bishop was originally going to be done with him alone so according to lance henriksen he suggested to james cameron to have hudson's hand put on top of his to which cameron agreed the change was discussed with almost everyone except bill paxton <laughs> so the scene went off fine except one take where paxton's pinky stuck out a little bit and henriksen accidentally grazed it see i knew the story up until that very last line he cut bill paxton <laughs> what yeah so also According to Lance Henderson, when he saw the movie at the premiere, he was so impressed by the effort that James Cameron had put into the making of the movie as a director, writer, and designer that he was left speechless to the point that he promised Cameron that he would write him a letter to properly express his feelings about it. He never ended up doing this because he's, (laughs) you know. But uh, Cameron misinterpreted this as a sign that Henderson hated the movie. (laughs) But eventually they cleared it all up. I mean, everybody says they're going to write a letter and they never do. So it doesn't yeah. matter. I was watching this because I had this from notes and then I actually watched it where last night where he talked about it in an interview. And um, yeah, he said it was actually a couple, you know, a couple of years or, or like six months or something like that before uh, he talked with Cameron again and let him know that, oh, no, it was because I loved it so much. You know, I think this is a lot of like, so. Cameron has a lot of the same people on some of his movies, right? Is do you think maybe this is why Lance Henriksen doesn't show up that often? And, no, or I ever I don't again? Think so I was like, oh, he hated my movie. I'm just not going to hire him anymore. <laughs> I, I, the thought had crossed my mind, but they obviously cleared it up. So I don't know if at least Henriksen thought they cleared it up, but you know, who knows? <laughs> okay. The shooting script contained a scene where the Marines get into a co-ed shower aboard the Sulaco after waking up from hypersleep to show equality between Marines of both genders. According to the actors, at the last moment, the the decision uh, to film it was left to the actresses involved, who weren't too enthusiastic about the idea, so the the scene was never filmed. I mean... I understand what they're going for as far as like gender equality and whatnot, but you don't have to have that kind of gratuitous nudity. So, I mean, I think it's okay, right? Because there's another science fiction movie that has the same kind of co-ed showers and gratuitous nudity. So we got to see it later on anyway. Yeah. So in both the standard and special edition versions, the 15-minute countdown at the end of the film is actually 15 minutes. Oh, I love when things play out in real time. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Although I didn't notice that it was actually 15 minutes because you're on the edge of your seat anyway the whole fucking time. Mm -hmm. So my last one. Whilst filming the power loader battle, the uh, the crew played a practical joke on Sigourney Weaver by strategically strapping a balloon connected to an air pipe to where her backside would be. So when they pumped up the balloon, Sigourney thought the man operating that power loader inside it was getting aroused behind her. <laughs> oh, yeah. that's a terrible joke. <laughs> So I thought this was apocryphal, right? So I actually watched some of like the, I just had to search and search for it. And so it was just like in the behind the scenes, like 
behind the scenes, behind the scenes stuff. And so there was this little interview with Sigourney Weaver where they, they asked her about that. And she was like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like that would happen. We were in there all day. And so every few hours I would feel this thing. I was like, Oh, what's going on back there? (laughs) (laughs) She's so classy. (laughs) If I were casting a movie, I would cast her in every Get your boner off me, you bitch! (laughs) Get that boner away from me, you bitch! (laughs) I fucking love that. I like how you save the best ones for last. It always makes me very happy. (laughs) Well, those facts were very fun, but we have to answer some questions about aliens, like we do for every movie that we cover here on the Film Flamers. And we'll start with, were you scared while watching Aliens? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I was definitely scared watching this movie. Um, every time that I watch it, I mean, you can't have like such kinds of action scenes and not feel a little tension build, right? Especially when you get to know a lot of the characters that are involved in such a short amount of time. And, yeah. you know, like in most action movies, they're picked off sort of one by one. But yes, it's incredibly frightening. Not to mention the aliens in this movie are just, you know, scarier than the one that's an alien. Yeah, and it's just like the first film. It's very masterful about how it builds up tension and then it goes a million miles a minute, you know, and it's frequently cited as one of the most tense films, you know, possibly ever made. So, you know, uh, I definitely felt scared the first time I watched it as a kid and, uh, you know, pretty much been addicted to it ever since. So with that being said, then, would you consider Aliens a horror movie? Yes. Yeah, I think I would, too. I mean, obviously, there's some adjacency going on here because it really is an action movie, too. In fact, I would off I would say that Alien is more of a horror film than Aliens, right? Mm-hmm. And we've already talked about it changing genre. But I think that Aliens is scary enough, intense enough, and terror-filled enough that it can still hold on to that, that, horror, that horror genre title. Yeah, and it was by design. You know, he said himself he wanted to kind of try and distance himself a little bit of the horror that the first film achieved and go more towards terror right and uh i think better men than i have uh you know described the difference between horror and terror stephen king had a very good uh description of between the two that i can't quite recall but um definitely there are so many horror elements and horror moments uh in this uh film you know which are kind of in between and juxtaposed by the action you know yeah so and i will forever say that there's just a very very fine line between horror and terror so yeah this isn't even horror jason this is it's a horror yeah Mm -hmm. okay so out of five stars what would you rate aliens five stars also five stars for me yeah i i had it as a four and a half um you know but i I'm just like, you know what? This is one of my favorite movies. I don't know what I would have done differently. You know, some of it's, uh, you know, due to just the technology at the time, my problems with it. Some of the overt lines at the beginning that I feel are a little excessive, you know, whatever, you know, and I have to, you know, I have to give it a five. I gave Alien a five and they're equals in my mind for different reasons. Um, yeah. You know, and so this is one of those very rare ones for me. Well, and like you said earlier, you know, Alien is a better film and Aliens is a good movie, right? A better movie. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I 
as a as a movie lover, I like watching movies that are well made and would we'll call them a film. And I also really enjoy enjoying myself watching a movie. And that's exactly what Aliens is. I mean, it's it's good from start to finish. I'm never bored. I like the characters. I like the story. And this is something that I you know watch frequently, not as frequently as Alien. But I mean, this is a movie that I would never mind someone saying, "Hey, do you want to watch Aliens?" The answer is always fucking a. <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> so always yeah five stars totally i have four five star horror movies on my letterbox cover because you can put four movies there as your favorites and so i have put poltergeist alien aliens and the witch all five stars for me and i only have one horror movie on my four movies (laughs) so and yet so finally and lord knows this may be difficult to answer who's the hottest guy in aliens. It's Michael Bean. Michael Bean. It's it's yeah, Michael Bean hands down. It is not Michael Bean. It's Michael Bean. I'm sorry to say, okay. Let Daddy in. So I mean <laughs> yes. He's very, very attractive, okay? But I would go so far as to say that Bill Paxton is more attractive than him in this movie. From a character standpoint, you know, he'd just be the person that I would, you know, gravitate toward. But the hottest guy in this movie, by far, is somebody who is barely in it. He's killed very early on in the battle, and it's Private Frost, played by Rico Ross. Okay. Okay, he's like, he's super, super hot. He's got this nice chiseled jaw. And there's a scene where he's wearing this really tight shirt across his bicep where he's passing out guns to everybody. And I was like, oh my fucking God, look at that arm. I mean, like, I just can't. I can't help myself. Kind of, I don't know, in certain angles, he just looks like so Cro-Magnon or, you know, bony on his... I'm okay with that. He's su- he's super like chiseled and very like prominently featured in the face or whatever, mm-hmm. and I'm there for it. Like okay. he's just like like uber super like masculine looking. I don't know. He's just so so hot, so pretty. I don't know. I go a little bit more for like personality, and I feel like if you were to go off of you know headshots or something, I might go for like a Bill Paxton or something. But if I was to spend five minutes in a room with all three of those people, it would be Michael Bean. If I were to spend five minutes in a room with all three of those people, I would ask Michael Bean to go make us all drinks and I'd be having sex with the other two. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, then you can join him when he brought the drinks back. But I mean, hey, it's the thing is, we don't often get to have movies like Aliens when we talk about this particular question. And it really is just an embarrassment of riches. There's so much man candy in this movie and they're not afraid to flaunt it. So... Bravo, aliens and James Cameron. Keep bringing the parade of men on. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the real achievement here. I mean, if there's an Oscar for that, it would have (laughs) won. So... But I think that just about wraps up our discussion on Aliens and our discussion about the Alien franchise so far. Like we hinted at in this episode, we're probably going to be revisiting the franchise again next July and talk about Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection and maybe even continue it on from there. So I guess some of that really depends on you listeners. Let us know what you think about our conversations on Alien and what you think about the franchise itself. You can do that on social media at the Film Flamers, uh, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call us on our hotline at 
866-7733. Leave us a message and we'll play it on the next Shooting the Flames episode and respond to it. We also like to remind you that we like to call out our patrons and reviews on Shooting the Flames. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, head over, give us a five-star review, a little snippet about why you like us, and we'll read that. And head over to patreon.com slash thefilmflamers so we can find all of our bonus content and early access to episodes just like these for as little as $2. That's right. And this month on Patreon, we shall be covering They Live. One of my favorite horror movies ever. So I'm super excited about that. Mm -hmm. And keep looking forward into next month. We just talked about a very big summer blockbuster, but we got two summer blockbusters coming up for you in August. And we'll be discussing the films of Steven Spielberg, starting with Jaws and finishing with Jurassic Park. A lot of horror adjacency and horror action. Oh my fucking God, it's a dinosaur. (laughs) Holy shit, Jesus Christ. Well, guys, thanks as always for listening. We appreciate all the listens and support. But it's now nighttime, and we mostly come at night. So it's time for us to head out and have some. I did it again. I can't help myself. (laughs) Well, it's healthy to come at night. I know. Mostly. Or in the daytime. That's fine. Mostly. (laughs) Let's rock some. Sweet dreams. Game over, man. Game over. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking A. (laughs) I can't even say it the way he says it, right? I think that may have been the first time as a kid I ever heard say fucking A. He's like, fucking A. (laughs) You know, it's so good. Oh, shit. (sighs) Mostly.